my mental model, having kind of fought various wars like this over 30 years, um, my mental model is basically persuasion doesn't happen. <laughs> it's, it's no, nobody actually like. Why write the essay at all, right? Uh, yeah, because you, you can create a movement, right? So so you, you can't persuade, but you can create a movement. All of the anti-crypto energy, not all of it, but a large amount of it that was like running like white hot like six and 12 months ago, it's now been diverted onto anti-AI. These things that look like they're kind of overnight breakthroughs, they aren't. What happens was there was a backstory, right? And then the backstory usually was the way I read the history is usually 30 to 40 years of prior attempts to make the thing work that didn't happen, that you know that basically did did, did not deliver on. Um, it, with AI, it's actually an even more extreme story. It's an 80 year, it's an 80 year backstory, right? The original neural network paper was published 80 years ago in 1943. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today. I'm speaking with Mark Andreessen, a very exciting episode for me and hopefully for you too. He is the founder of Netscape, of the venture capital firm A16Z, and one of the most prominent commentators on technology, on theories of change, and now on AI. We'll dive right into that topic, discussing AI, discussing possible scenarios, the failure of conservatives to find any kind of political position on this issue. Long-term theory of innovation, why startups succeed, why startups fail, and whether that translates, whether a translation, whether a change in the economy translates to a You are much better off life, living in a society that has too many speculative culture. bubbles around new technologies that has too few. If you like the episode, the number one thing you can do to help the show is to let a friend know, either in person or online. Not only are you helping us out, but hopefully you're finding someone, you're helping someone find something that's enjoyable, that's interesting, that's informative, and that helps both of us. Some listeners might ask why I didn't go further into criticisms of Mark Andreessen. And, you know, listen to the episode. Listen around, you know, 15 minutes in or around the end. We discuss political strategy. We discuss what the point even is of going on media tours like this. And there, I think you'll find the obvious answer. Anyways, more on this in the post-podcast reflection, which you can get if you subscribe to the Substack linked below. Without further ado, here's Mark Andreessen. So, first big thing, uh, the news item of the day. Uh, meta open sourcing its LLM. Uh, do you think this is the way to go? Do you think this is a positive or negative sign compared to other AI companies? I mean, you know, I'm I'm hugely in this. I should start by you know kind of declaring right. I'm on the <laughs> I'm on the board of Meta, um, and so I'll, I'll be cautious right. about what I'll say about them as a company. But also, you know, my firm Andreessen Horowitz, we endorsed this. Um, we actually have we actually have the Llama two model already running up 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 on an, on a service called Replicate, um, so people can people could use it literally on, in the first thirty seconds of the announce, which was great. Um, and then uh, yeah, my firm is an enthusiastic endorser supporter uh, of this. Yeah, I mean, look, I just think overwhelmingly, obviously, clearly, this is an incredibly positive move. Um, and you know, we could talk about the, you know sort of many different aspects of that, but one is just it's a big advance in functionality. So it's a you know it's a the, the big model is a seventy billion parameter model. It was kind of released in full, released in both pre-trained and and uh, and, and, and fine-tuned versions. And so it's a it's a level of power and capability, you know that 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 has not been available uh, to developers, um, you know, up until now. So it's going to be really exciting to see what people do with it. And then, yeah, look, I mean, open. 
like, you know, truly open AI, like, you know, AI available to everybody, you know, as I, I think is just as important as, you know, electricity available to everybody or microchips or, or operating systems, right, or the web. Um, yeah, and, that's a great know. way to frame it. Uh, right. But I think for a lot of people uh, in this audience, you know, they'll, they'll ask, you know, open source, why does it matter? Yeah. So, well, so yeah, so it matters a couple. So, so it matters. It normally matters for kind of a sort of an abstract, but very important reason, which is something called permissionless innovation. Right. And so the, the, it matters because it basically unleashes the creativity of humanity against a new technological domain, as opposed to just, you know, having, as opposed to just having, you know, basically oligarchic, you know, big companies, you know, able to, able to do things with technology. And, and, you know, that's a, that's a sort of, you know, well-established dynamic. Um, you know, more recently, I think open source for AI matters even more than that, because, you know, as, as, as you well know, there's this, you know, quote unquote, AI safety movement um, or AI alignment movement. And, you know, there's a lot of different puts and takes on that. But my interpretation of that is it's, a uh, you know, the, the, the people doing that are, are basically gunning for two things that I, I view as very bad. One is the application of the so-called precautionary principle uh, to AI, which I just think is just a, a catastrophically bad concept for the same reason it was a catastrophically bad concept when it was applied to nuclear power 40 years ago. Um, and then, you know, the other is just, um, you know, do, do we really want to live in a world in which a small number of big companies achieve regulatory capture uh, and form a cartel amongst themselves and with, you know, and with the government uh, and basically control the future of technology? Um, and that, that is the push, up, you know, from a bunch of big AI companies in Washington right now. And, you know, the best way to prevent that from happening is, for AI, for, is to just have a, you know, fait accompli and have AI just available for free to everybody. Right, right. It seems like... Uh, definitely under the American regulatory standards and the American constitution, I think open source AI would be much harder to regulate. Uh, in the EU, they're just they're just taking the totalitarian hammer, right? Have you seen this? Have you seen the EU's AI Act? Yeah, it's you know, and it, of course, this is not the first round of these with the EU, right? And so it's it's and and you know they they in the in the, in the sort of in the old days. In the old days, totalitarian regimes were like basically really rough, um, right, and kind of very like violent and deadly. Um, you know, the the new form of this sort of soft totalitarianism that you get in the EU is it's this weird combination. It's like the security blanket, you know, kind of thing that becomes increasingly you know suffocating and strangling. Um, and it shows up in issues as silly as you know cookies pop ups everywhere you know, all the way up to and including like literally, you know, bans on bans on AI, right? And of course, you know, bans on AI, you know, mean in practice bans on math, right? Which just gets like increasingly absurd. Um, and, and so the, the, the EU's kind of been on this path for, for you know, for, for, for decades. Um, and they're, you know, characterized as kind of their level of emotional rage um, at, you know, a changing world and, and the United States and, and tech and capitalism is, you know, is intensifying in kind of increasingly bizarre and dangerous ways. Um, so, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So, so some of that, I don't know, you've looked at, you've looked at some books that I think are popular among my audience, something like uh, James Burnham, right, the Machiavellians, you know, yeah. we, we say that we say that we have, basically, you know, we have First Amendment protections. And sometimes the Supreme Court does uh, uphold those protections. But I don't know. Are, are you worried that, you know, with with AI and with the obvious kind of demand for with a lot of special interests wanting to kind of crack down on AI, do you worry that there will be basically measures taken either by, you know, creating new administrative agencies or otherwise that will basically, you know, violate the First Amendment and do it anyway? 
you know, the, the, the first thing to notice is that, the, you know, the first the First Amendment, unfortunately, right, only applies to the United States, right? And so it's actually a fairly yeah, remarkable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. This is actually something I actually didn't realize until I just hadn't paid enough attention to kind of legal, you know, kind of legal history. But, um, you know, in the social media wars, you know, that I've been you know involved in a long time, you know, I, I, I actually, you know, discovered, you know, several years back that, you know, the other Anglophone countries, right, the UK, Canada, um, New Zealand, and Australia actually do not have constitutional <laughs> free speech protections, um, right, which is which is fairly amazing. Um, um, you know, they, they may have some history of, of allowing it, but they, they have no such protections. And of course, they have you know, increasing legal regimes that, you know, fly directly in the face of, you know, such a protection where they have it. Um, and then look, in, in the U.S., you know, <laughs> we sort of have free speech. Um, you know, the, the the practical reality is that, you know, governments at all levels have tremendous power, right? And they have tremendous power both when they do things explicitly um, and, and, and as well as when they, when they do things implicitly. And, the, you know, the kinds of pressure they can bring to bear. Uh, on companies and individuals, even in what looks like an obvious violation of constitutional rights is, you know, is, is quite profound. And, and in theory, you know, the courts will protect you against that, um, except, you know, two issues with that. One is the courts themselves, of course, get politicized. So it depends which court you get. And then the other, you know, the other problem is just like court cases can take a long time. Um, and so in theory, you can have a good case, you know, that your rights are being violated, but it could take you five or 10 years and tens of millions of dollars to actually litigate all the way to the Supreme Court to actually get a ruling. And so the, these, these, I, I would say I've come to a heightened appreciation of the founders of the American Republic and to the constitution, because like these rights are tenuous, right. And, and, and they're, you know, they're tenuous historically and they're tenuous now. Right. Right. You see, it's interesting, right. There, there, there are two camps. There's the kind of, um, if the constitution is going to be so blatantly violated, you know, if you're going to have such precedents such as the general welfare clause, basically, I think many people saying basically like running roughshod over what constitutional constitutional uh, over the majority of what constitutional protections existed before, um, then then like why does it even matter? And then there's the second camp, which I think that both of us are more in alignment with. That uh, basically, you know, like it's better than nothing, right? So some amount of uh, affordance, some amount of explicit protection is definitely better than not having it at all. And these things kind of work themselves out in weird, you know, weird real politic ways. Yeah, look, if if the, if the Supreme Court in any country, if the Supreme Court can't ultimately like control the rest of the government, you know, when it, when it breaches whatever constitutional protections exist, you know, then then I think you are well and truly lost. And so you 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 definitely rather rather have those protections. It's just that you know they they don't always apply in the moment, right? And I'll just give you you know this sort of uh, sort of obvious example that's just like shocked me, you know, just like to I was ridiculous levels in the last decade, which is, you know, the the government cannot, you know, the the, the you know people always say this, the government, you know, the, the constrains Congress, right? It can the the First Amendment constrains Congress. The First Amendment sort of binds Congress from passing laws, you know, that violate U.S. Uh, you know constitutional protections for free speech. Um, and so there's this very interesting thing that the government has figured out how to do in the last decade, which is they they outsource it, right? They 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 figure out right whatever whatever regime is in power, they figure out what speech they want to they want to restrict, and then they outsource it to quote unquote private entities, right? M- many of which are government funded, <laughs> right? And then those private entities can go out and restrict freedom of speech, and then the the people doing it can say, oh look, it's not the government. Now, in the fullness of time, I, I think I think what's going to happen, I think what we're headed towards is, is the Supreme Court case where that is going to be challenged. Um, and there's going to be a case in the next, I would guess, two or three years. Um, it'll still take a little time, but probably in two or three years, there'll be a case that basically where the, the court basically says the government cannot outsource speech restrictions that would be illegal if it did them to a third party and certainly not in the case of a third party that it is paying for. 
Um, but, but I think that has to actually be a case like that, that, that actually has to be ruled on. Quite frankly, I think people need to go to jail. Um, I think there have been felonies committed, uh, and there, there are actually laws that cover this that are not being enforced. Um, you know, but look, this has been, there's been almost a decade of this in kind of plain sight with the social media companies. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, in the fullness of time, the Supreme court hopefully will rule on it, but it, you know, it's going to, it's going to have been 10 or 12 or 15 years of sort of blatantly unconstitutional activity before it finally gets ruled on. Yeah, so so there's actually a case very related to this. Um, it's not a Supreme Court case, not yet, uh, but there's this lower court ruling on, I think, against the FBI uh, specifically that essentially barred it and similar government agencies from contacting social media companies. Right. Uh, I can find that now, but yeah, like th- this is definitely coming down the pipe. This is going to be an actual. Uh, this is going to be an actual thing, and then I think very, very in the very near term. Yep. Yeah, I think but, that 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 case is a good example. That I, you know, we'll see. That case might go to. The, that's the kind of case that you can imagine going to the Supreme Court, and 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 I, you know, you can imagine certain justices on the Supreme Court being very enthusiastic about that happening. Right. Right. <laughs> certain justices that we will not make laser <laughs> memes, uh, laser eye memes out of. <laughs> um, exactly. Okay. So, so let's get. Let's get back to the let's get back to the point though. So so like you know I think both of us agree there's enormous potential in AI. You know why why do people want to ban it? What's your best kind of summary of why people want to ban it? Yeah. So the you know the thing I always look for you know with with confront with this kind of question is kind of what happened historically, right? So what what happened right. when other technologies came out? And and you know I kind of did a I did a full kind of undressing of that a while ago, reading for my own benefit and. Uh, Conclusion I came out I came out with um, is actually based on this book called uh, Men, Machines, and Modern Times, which is it turns out to be this classic book written on exactly this topic, written by an MIT professor about fifty five years ago, so you know pre predating all these issues, um, and um, and he does this like extensive study of of the release of new technologies and sort of the level of institutional and governmental resistance to them, and and the conclusion he reaches is the one that I think is correct, which is basically what happens is new technologies represent a shift of power and status. Right. Um, and so basically, like society at any given moment um, has power and status hierarchies that were determined by technological shifts that took place in the past. Right. And so shifts, you know, ranging from, you know, gunpowder, you know, to electricity, to the printing press, radio, television and so forth. And, you know, the current people in power at any given time inherited those power and status relationships from the battles that have been fought in decades or centuries earlier. Um, but of course, you know, anybody in position, in a position of power or status views that power and status as a, you know, as a divine, as a divine right and something that should never change. Um, and then a new technology comes out and threatens to upend that, you know, basically that power hierarchy. Um, and then, and then you get a natural, you get a natural reaction, um, you know, where people get like incredibly vividly mad, um, and they get mad and they get mad, they get mad in ways that they'll actually behave self-destructively. They'll actually refuse to adopt new technologies that would actually be beneficial to them and certainly to the people that they represent, um, because their own power is threatened. Um, the example that this, uh, this guy, Elton Morrison uses in this book that's so striking, um, is the famous example for this now, which was the, the invention of the first naval gun. Um, that automatically um, uh, uh, compensated for the role of a ship, uh, battleship on the ocean. Um, and this gun basically uh, uh, increased the accuracy of, uh, of firing of naval cannons by 10x, um, right? Because, you know, gunners prior to this gun had to, you know, hand, try to hand correct and, and, and predict, you know, the very unpredictable role of the ship. And so, you know, most, right. most, most cannon shots missed. 
you know, naval battles more than 100 years ago, the ships would be next to each other and they'd be firing at each other for a long time and most of the shots would miss because of this. <laughs> and so this gun comes out, it increases the accuracy rate to almost 100% and both the US and the UK navies fight it for a generation. Like they just simply will not implement it. Um, and ultimately, the inventor huh. of the technology, Sims, ultimately has to appeal directly to President Rose President Teddy Roosevelt at the time uh, to get the Navy to take it seriously. And the re and the re and the reason he reconstructs the entire history, and the and the reason is um, the entire doctrine of naval war uh, and the entire management structure of a naval vessel and the entire function of gunnery officers was was all wired, you know, assuming the old technology. Um, and the new technology meant, you know, that a new generation of, you know, more technologically sophisticated gunnery officers was going to take over and, the, the, and, 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 and then, you know, officers trained in the new methods. Um, and if you were trained in the old school, you were irrelevant. And if you're trained in the new school, you were going to, you were going to, you were going to run everything. Um, and so, so Morrison has this framework. Uh, he says there's a three-stage framework for, uh, any new technology that threatens to upend power structures. He says, step one is ignore, um, you know, just like talk to the hand, it's not happening. Step two is what he calls rational counter-argument. Right. Where they kind of field every conceivable reason why the new thing can't work. Um, and then and, and they bring out all their existing experts to try to do that. And then step three, he says, is when the name calling begins. Right. It's when the fight <laughs> gets really, really, really vicious. And, like you know, in, in AI right now, we're, I would say we're somewhere between step two and step three. Right. I don't know. To me, like rational argument sounds good. Right. Like that, that that's kind of what I want to see. Uh, maybe that's not the context in which he uses it, right? Well, no, the problem, but the problem with rational arguments is like, okay, because what, well, first of all, you get, you get this endowment effect, right? Where the people making the rational arguments are the experts, right? And so you, you, you know, who get, who gets taken seriously in the realm of rational arguments is the people with the credentials, right? I mean, it's just, it's the same thing we saw in COVID, which is all these people come, you know, with public health degrees and, you know, all these, all these things, you know, kind of roll out and all of a sudden they're, they're the presumed experts making the rational arguments, you know, later on, you're like, well, wait a minute, that didn't make any sense. But in the moment, you know, they're the people who get taken seriously. Um, and then, um, and then look, you know, look, rational arguments, you know, in the abstract are a good idea. You know, they, as you know, they, they depend very much on the assumptions that people bring to the table. Um, and you know, it is, it, you know, <laughs> there's this old question, right? This this whole question is, is, uh, you know, kind of who's easier to fool, you know, kind of a dumb person or a smart person. Right. <laughs> and and the, the normal answer would be a smart person, a dumb person is easier to fool just because, you know, they're, they're dumber. But the, it, it turns out smart people are really good at creating sort of very advanced, you know, kind of multifaceted abstract theories for why they're correct. Um, right. They're very good at cherry picking evidence. They're very good at, at rationalizing away disconfirming evidence. Um, and so when, when he says rational arguments, I think that's that that's what he means. Like the, the, the ones that look like the rational arguments, you know, 50, you know, 10 years or 50 years later, you're like, OK, what were they smoking? But in the moment, like it was, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a wall of quote unquote expertise that, that you have to go up against. Yeah, I think this is like the resurgence of Hayek, right? This is the resurgence of people basically saying, you know, you pretend that all of these things are 100% predictable. Really, they're much more dependent on kind of a type of social evolution. Yeah. And then incentives, you know, again, maybe obvious, but like incentives rule the world. Right. Um, and so if you have an expert um, who has built their entire career in a, in a previous yeah, you know, paradigm, um, you know, the, you know, so what was the famous line is science advances one funeral at a time. Like, <laughs> yes. You know, the reputation. I, I just read this amazing book, by the way, if you haven't read it, the, it's, like, it's, it's incredible. It's called um, uh, uh, When Reason uh, When Reason Goes on Holiday. Um, it's this, uh, this author Sassardic and, and it's, a uh, it's one of these rundowns. It's one of these rundowns. Basically it's what happens when philosophers become involved in politics. Um, and of course the answer is, you know, things go catastrophically wrong. Um, 
Um, but, um, you know, he cites example after example of that, you know, in that book um, of, of, of philosophers and scientists who kind of stray into domains in which you would think that their expertise would apply, but it actually it actually doesn't. And the you know the, the, his capstone example is Einstein. <laughs> it turns out Einstein was a Stalinist, right? Like like full on huh. like full on Stalin supporter, um, right? And so, but you know, he was Einstein, right? And yeah, so like I think like when you're so kind of theoretically or logically ahead of people, you kind of gain an overestimation in central planning, right? right. I actually had. I, do you know who Rune is? Oh, uh, yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I had him on this podcast, I think, like a year and a half ago. And yeah, I, I, I think he reflects like, actually, this, this was him at the time. I'm not sure if he still believes this. But, you know, he, he was saying, you know, like, AI will make central planning way easier. And I think a lot of like AI people uh, think that this is the case, that when you get like a great leap in complexity, you know, one, one tool, right, which is, you know, which is what AI is. Uh, that that suddenly that'll make central planning a lot easier. I see this pattern a lot in history. And yeah, it's like, no, no, but the world also, you know, the world complexity also updates, right? This is where Hayek comes in. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I, I I would argue the exact opposite, which is especially with with truly open AI like today's announcement. Like, so basically you, you need to picture a future world in which everybody has AI. In a, you know, and it, which is a world in which everybody has, you know, an aug- basically augmentation, you know, that if, you know, does not make them directly smarter, but effectively does because it gives them a set of tools, you know, that, that make them much more effective in whatever they're trying to do. And so you, you just you're going to have a world of, you know, 10 billion people that are going to be that are going to all have access to these tools. You know, that world is going to be vastly more complex than the world we live in today. Um, and so, yeah, so there's no question that the, the, the central planning dream never dies. The central planners will attempt to do the central planning. It's just, you know, they will be confronted. It's like if you chart the curves of the intelligence of the center versus the intelligence of the edges, the intelligence of the edges will be rising much faster. Um, and so the central right, planning right. Fa- fallacy, I'm convinced, will you know, I, I, it, it will remain a fallacy for I'm sure the rest of my life. And I, I, I honestly can't even imagine a world in which it in which it, it, it ever shifts the other way. Right. I think like Sam Hammond has this wonderful line uh, where he says, uh, imagine a world where every person has the capabilities a CIA agent, CIA agent has today. Right. Like, like, is that a world where it's, you know, easier to, to impose totalitarian crackdowns or harder? Right. It's definitely uh, it, it's definitely harder. And th- that gets to like that gets to my question now, which is it seems like, you know, like I, I can't get too angry at like bureaucrats who who hate technology because to me, that's like kind of their rational interest. Right. Maybe not in the long term. Right. If they have children, it's probably not in their children's in- interest. But like maybe in their narrow terms, that's true. Why why aren't like why aren't conservatives more more into defending AI? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. So one is there's this general just asymmetry, which is the consequence of the way kind of intellectual life works and then credentialing around intellectual life works. So my take was basically quote all the quote unquote experts are on are on one side. Um, and, and, you know, some, some of that I think is, you know, the, 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 you know, kind of the left, the, the, the left is, you know, is characterized personality, you know, in terms of personality traits by being, by, by being open. And so kind of all, you know, people inclined towards kind of intellectual kind of adventure, you know, are going to, you know, tend to, tend to cluster on the left. Obviously the credentialing institutions for expertise are heavily on the left. Um, you know, the political party that's the most kind of enamored by expertise is on the left. And so, you know, you just, you, you kind of have this thing where like, te- you know, sort of technical expertise tends, tends to cluster on one side. You know, and by the way, and that doesn't mean that the other side is like wrong on everything. It just means that they, you know, if, if it's going to be a battle of experts, you know, the, the, especially credential experts, they're they're generally going to be mismatched. Um, 
you know, I, I always think about Peter Thiel's, uh, you know, kind of quote about Trump, which is, you know, you need to take, you know, he, he, he's, he always said you need to take Trump, you know, kind of seriously, but not literally. And I always think that's, that's kind of true. Like you should take experts on the left kind of literally, but not seriously. And you should, mm-hmm. you should take the people countering against them, uh, arguing against them on the right seriously, but not literally. Um, and then, and then things start to start to start to make sense. And so I, I think there's some of that, um, you know, look, I, quite honestly, I think also a big part is I think a lot of conservatives just view tech, the tech industry generally as being a, a thing of the left. And so they just like, you know, which, which by the way, if you look at voting records and political donation records, like it's a pretty strong argument there. Um, and so they just kind of reflexively don't like it. Um, and then look, you know, conservatives have their own counter arguments, right? Conservatives, you know, generally are, you know, the whole nature of conservatism is to be, you know, sort of, you know, let's just say cautious, you know, about, about changes. Um, and so, you know, they have their own counter arguments, uh, certainly about technology, um, and about the rate of change in society. Um, and so I, yeah, I, they, you know, they're more natural allies than, you know, at least modern leftists, but you know, they're, they're not necessarily fully natural allies, uh, to technological change, even just on their own merits. Yeah. I think the big thing here is that, do you know this phrase, like, Politico did a recent, like, kind of hit piece on it, but, like, this has been a phrase, like, going around uh, some right-wing circles for a while. Do you know the phrase, like, do you know what time it is? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it feels like it, it feels like conservatives who, who fall in that camp, they should, um, they should be, I don't know, there, there's this kind of, you know, there, there's this kind of argument attributed to, to Peter Thiel. Uh, often, which is basically, you know, like capitalism needs to outrun, you know, basically totalitarianism, right? It needs to continually create new ways of innovating before all the old ways of innovating are being banned. Uh, and, you know, like, like if, if you ever fail this, you know, there goes, there goes your society. Um, I do think there's an increasing, you know, maybe not like adoption of that argument, but a kind of you know, e- even if they're not explicitly pro-tech in that way, in the in the way that I think we are, uh, they're they're kind of like un- they get the argument, they and it's convinced them at least not to be actively antagonistic towards it, right? Yeah, well, I think look, I think if if you're on the right and you've if you've watched what's happened uh, with social media and censorship in the last decade, like you should, you at the very least, you should know what time it is, right? Like it, it, it's very vivid, like what's happened, right? And it's all, of course, the details are all spilling out in public. Um, and then, of course, we we saw a very similar kind of thing happen with the intersection of of censorship and, and COVID over the last three years. And so, you know, I I do think more people on the right are kind of are are kind of aware of of what you're saying. And then look, you know, you know, there 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 is there is after all this time, there is a libertarian wing. Um, you know, and, and, you know, the libertarian wing does, you know, like the, you know, the problem with libertarianism is it doesn't have, you know, it never has mass support, um, you know, but it is advocating for, you know, for things that a lot of people like and want, and want to have in their lives. Um, and, um, you know, it is advocating for things that, you know, cause economic growth and it's advocating for things that cause greater degrees of freedom. Um, you know, and the things it's advocating for are real, right. Um, and you know, they're, they're, you know, new technologies often do have a liberating effect. Um, and so, you know, yeah. So I, I, and I would always kind of center in on, okay, like what, what, like what's the actual truth of things? And like the truth doesn't always win, um, you know, but it's a pretty good starting point, um, you know, to be able to actually process through these things. And uh, it, it's like the anti-AI arguments now. It's my it's sort of my, it's like, okay, we're going to ban AI. Okay. AI is already in use by a hundred million people, right? Like, so 
100 million people are like on chat GPT or Midjourney or whatever. And they're like, you know, making their images and their videos. And now they're, you know, they're doing their writing their, you know, they're helping their kids with their homework and they're working on their, you know, reports for work and they're doing all the things that they're doing, you know, with this technology. And it's like, okay. And it's just like, so obviously like useful and helpful and productive and positive, um, you know, in people's lives already. Um, and so it's like, okay, now we're going to ban it. It's like, <laughs> it's like, no, you're not right. Like there, there, you know, the, the, the argument that that is not actually a correct and proper thing to do is not just an abstract argument. It's an, it's a very practical argument. And I think even people who would never consider themselves libertarians are going to be like, you know, okay, you're going to just like take this away from me. I, you know, I don't think so. Yeah, but you look at the EU, you know, like it's very, it's very possible. You look at, I guess, nuclear energy, it never got rolling, right? It never really, um, it never became obvious that it was integral to people's lives uh, or would be integral to people's lives. Uh, Look, that's the giant cautionary tale. I mean, that's the one I I always, you know, my, I have friends who are like, Mark, stop talking about nukes. AI isn't nukes. You're going to scare everybody. And I'm like, no, we need to talk about nukes because like the precautionary principle was actually invented by the German Greens to prevent nuclear power. Um, right. And then I, I always point to, um, you know, Richard Nixon in 1971, 1972, around the time I was born, he proposed something called Project Independence, right, which was the he, he Project Independence was the U.S. was going to build a thousand new nuclear power plants, civilian nuclear power plants in the 1970s. The, the U.S. is going to cut over to an, to an all electric uh, grid, all powered by nuclear power, completely shut off fossil fuels, right, completely cut over to electric cars by 1980. Um, and so, and like, it was like, okay, there was that. And then he, of course, (laughs) in parallel created the EPA and the nuclear regulatory commission. And, you know, between the two of those agencies, they completely stopped nuclear power. Um, (laughs) right. And then, you know, but you, again, you fast forward 40 years, you know, the future and you're like, oh my God, you know, the world that we could have lived in, you know, with kind of unlimited, you know, cheap energy, you know, you know, the dream of technology always is what we call too cheap to meter. Right. Like the, the, you know, the dream is like, just like unlimited power for free, zero emissions. Like it's all good. Like that, that is a world that we could live in uh, and we could be living in today that, that we that we that, that, that we chose not to. Now, you know, the, the, the argument as to why, you know, this time is is harder. Right? It's harder to ban AI than it was to ban nuclear power is because like to build a nuclear power plant, like there's a lot of real world things that you obviously have to do, including ultimately obtaining nuclear material. Um, and so, that, you know, the government very effectively could stop that, you know. AI, you know, I, 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 you know, my, my, my hope is AI is more like cryptography. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's code and math. Um, and so now that the code, you know, the, as you know, today was a big step forward. The, the llama code is out. The llama code is going to be on the internet forever. Um, and then, you know, the, the techniques for building AI are, you know, in every, you know, math textbook, you know, every, every math class, every university math course now is, is covering this material. Um, and so, you know, my hope is put, putting it back in the box the way they did with nuclear power is, is not actually practical. Although, like I said, I think there, there's a good chance they're going to try and, and the EU is trying for sure. Right. So going back a bit, I think this is more of a question of strategy than in terms of accuracy, but I think there are kind of two arguments that can be, uh, made Go, going back to like, a, I agree with the framing here, like going back to the second phrase, we're a phase, we're in the phase of kind of rational argument, that there's kind of two approaches to this, right? One is the kind of, you know, classically liberal approach of just saying, you know, like, here, here are the better arguments. Uh, I, I've tried to do that. I've tried to just point at kind of factual claims that EAs make, which I think are, uh, which I think are just false. Um and then there is a kind of like sociological argument, right? There, there's, you know, look at these parallels across history. I think you do that in your article. I think some EAs were very annoyed by that, right? They don't really see, they don't really accept the kind of sociological argument at all. Um, 
in terms of both in terms of like persuasion, uh, in terms of like persuading people who are kind of AI doomers, and in terms of uh, persuasion of people who are basically neutral, right? Like, what do you think? What do you think are the the benefits and the drawbacks of these kind of these two strategies? And, and like any other alternatives that you want to offer? Yeah, so I, we may disagree on this. Like my mental model, having kind of fought various wars like this over thirty years, um, my mental model is basically persuasion doesn't happen. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's no nobody actually like why you know, write the essay at all, right? Uh, yeah, because you you can create a movement, right? So so you you can't persuade, but you can create a movement, um, right? Um, and so like people don't, I don't think people really get necessarily persuaded into arguments. I don't think they can really get persuaded out of them. Like the human mind is not really like we have this, you know, as you know, the type type one, type two kind of thing. Like, you know, we, we, we only engage in type two thinking on a very rare exception basis. And usually when it's something that is like really directly relevant to our, you know, immediate survival, um, you know, generally people are, people are not, not rational, dispassionate, you know, we're, you know, we're not, you know, we're not, we're not data from Star Trek. Um, and so like, I, I think basically people generally don't get talked out of bad arguments. Um, I, I think what happens is movements form. Um, and you know, there's clearly an anti-AI movement. I, I think clearly there needs to be a pro pro AI movement. Um, you know, the interesting thing about the pro AI movement is it, it, there are actually a lot of people who are kind of implicitly already in the pro AI movement and they're just people who are, you know, basically making AI. Right. So it's like it's like every <laughs> give you an example of the dynamics. So I talked to a friend of mine in the in the government, um, in the executive branch, who's in the middle of, of, of all this stuff. And, and you know, I'm, I'm making all these arguments. And my friend is like, well, why are you the only person making these arguments? Like I, I have like, you know, 100 people come and see me, you know, in Washington and they all make the AI doomer argument. Like, why does anybody come and make the, you know, the positive AI argument? And I'm like, because those are the people all building AI. The, the, the people who are going to make the positive argument are the people who are building it. And of course, they're busy building it. Right. And so there's, right, there's... Right. yeah, yeah. Th- this used to be my Twitter bio for a while. Like if, if you're all building companies, who is defending the companies? Right. Like, yeah, I, I do think. And, and if I, I could, if I, if I could, this is, again, this is sort of a classic political, political psychology thing, which is the productive yeah. people tend to cluster on one side. Right. And then, the, and then the intellectual people tend to cluster on the, on the other side. And, and so the intellectual people will be out arguing vocally against something. The productive people are actually doing it. But they're too busy doing it to argue their their, their case, and I, I think that's that's the nature of a lot of these debates, and I think that's what's happening now. Right. That that's that's interesting how you classify that because I'm not sure. You know, like I I would consider a lot of technologists to be very like intellectual, right? Maybe they're not, you know, publishing academic papers. I mean, like in, in the case of machine learning, many of them are, right? Like they're publishing machine learning papers, obviously, not like you know, not like philosophy papers. But but, but they're just bus- um, but they're just busy. Like a lot of it is they're just busy. Right. They're right. busy actually doing the thing. I mean, say, you know, say what you will about the AI doomers, like they're not writing a lot of code. <laughs> right. Right. And then the people who are like writing a lot of code generally are very pro AI. It's just they're not taking a lot of time to make those arguments in public. Um, and, and so, again, it's just like it's just it's just an asymmetry in the in the in the world that, that it works that way. Um, you know, it is what it is. I, look, anyway, so the, the point is, like, I think what needs to happen, I think what needs to happen is the creation of a, the creation of a movement. You know, I think I think that that movement naturally wants to exist and does exist because AI is obviously so helpful and, and important and, and exciting and valuable. And, and the people working on it are very fired up about it. And so and the people using it love it. Um, and so, the, you know, there is a lot of natural momentum in the direction of a pro AI movement. But, you know, look, it, it needs an intellectual component. Um, you know, it, it, need, it needs it needs branding. It, you know, it, it needs all the things that the you know, that the, that the doomers have. Um, and you know, it's just, it's going to be, it's going to be a reaction to a suppression attempt. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's basically starting now.
Yeah, it's it's very it's very interesting. I actually I went to DC just looking for um, so so I'm working on something very related to this right now. And I went to I went to DC looking for basically like this was a this was around a, I mean I went a few times but including a year ago including like a few months ago and basically just just like looking for intros to people who are working on similar things and I just ran into kind of like semi accidentally three people who already were on this podcast mm-hmm. so so it's very funny like th- these talent networks seem to be just so just so thin. And, you know, like the, the number of people who are interested in these topics, even like second order interested in these topics, you know, just interested in tech broadly are are kind of known. And it's crazy. It, it is just crazy how, how few of them there are. It does seem. Yeah, it, it does seem like a fundamental I don't know. Do you have insight on this? You also, of course, find talent in the in the VC context. Um, do you think there's an insight informing these movements there that you can draw uh, of how to actually find people who are who are going to work on this and who are going to basically, um, you know, correctly strategize on how to defend AI freedoms? Yeah, so I would say a couple of things. So one is, look, just people need a shelling point. Like the, the people, you, people need a rallying point. Like most people, most people don't build movements, right? Most most people like join movements that are, already exist. Um, and again, it's just like most people are busy, right? And so most people are not in their kind of revolutionary business, um, you know, which is why the, the communists always had their idea of the vanguard, right? So, so you, you know, you you need the vanguard, um, uh, and then you need the movement reform. Elaborate on that a little bit more. Like, what's the what's the vanguard? Oh, so the vanguard. So the vanguard was this was sort of Leninist. This is sort of Marxist Leninist. Stalinist theory, right? Which is, you know, so co- communism was to be a movement of the proletarian masses, um, right? And so you're a you're a German, whatever intellectual or a Russian, you know, political revolutionary, and you're like, all right, I, my 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 role here is to represent and rally the, the you know the uneducated masses. It's like the problem is the uneducated masses are not like sitting around waiting for me to come, like give them three hour speeches. You know, they're busy working, right? Like they're working fourteen hours a day, right? Like they're not and they're not intellectual, right? They're not they're they're not you know they're not the kind of people who sit around you know for years at a time you know working on you know, some sort of renegade underground communist newspaper. You know, there are people, you know, doing subsistence farming or working in a factory. Um, and so that led to the communist doctrine that said, you know, that therefore the role of the vanguard, the vanguard is the communist intellectual class, right, of people who are very much not working, um, you know, but are the educated types. Um, and their job is to, you know, write the books and the pamphlets and give the speeches and, you know, organize the meetings. Um, right. And then, and then, you know, the theory of communism, of course, was that the, the vanguard's role in life was to put the, 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 the proletariat in charge of everything. Uh, of course, when push came to shove, they did no such thing. <laughs> you know, when they took, when the vanguard took power, they kept it. Um, you know, but there was, there was this very clear separation, uh, right between kind of the intellectual leadership and then the, you know, sort of the, the, the masses, you know, I think that's a natural formation. Um, Eric Hoffer, by the way, in, in, in his book, the true believer, he actually reverses right, that. Excellent his- book. It's a great book. And he actually reverses that argument in a very kind of provocative way. He says, no, actually, he's like the people, what Eric Hoffer would say to what I just said is like, no, actually, the people in the vanguard think they're in charge. That's not what's actually happening. Um, Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. He says he says the role of the vanguard is not to run everything. He said the role of the vanguard is to provide the basically the fodder to recruit the intellectuals. Um, and so he says, basically, if you have a mass movement, the, 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 the majority of the mass movement is actually the masses. And, you know, the vanguard can fulminate about this, that and the other thing all they want. But, and the masses may or may not sign up for it. And there, there's always a surplus of vanguards relative to right, the ability for the masses to adopt their movements. And so he said it's not the vanguard leading the masses. It's in fact, it's usually the masses leading the vanguard. 
right? It's just like at some point people in volume get fed up with something. And then, and then, and then, and then what he says is it's reversed. The role of the vanguard is to build the intellectual superstructure that recruits other intellectuals to that movement. Right. And so all the books and magazines and pamphlets and university courses and all that, you know, they, they never make it to the masses, but, but they, what they do is they, they provide a shelling point to recruit the other intellectuals. <laughs> so anyway, so there, there's some feedback cycle loop between, you know, the leader, the quote unquote leaders of a movement, um, you know, and the masses. And of course, everybody who tries to lead a movement is always trying to figure this out because, you know, when you're, when you're leading a movement, like how much of it is you're trying to actually tell the movement what to do and how much of it is you're just trying to like basically figure out what the people want to do anyway and then kind of get in front of it. Um, and so anyway, it, these are all movements. The, the, the Doomer movement is a, you know, is, is a movement, uh, you know, the, the, the advantage the Doomer movement has is that it's, it's out, it's out, it's out, you know, in advance, you know, it was just better, it was better prepared, you know, I spent 20 years preparing for this moment. So it's, it's out in advance. And then, you know, Doomer, you know, negative arguments always sound more sophisticated, um, you know, at least in our culture. Um, and so, you know, it, it has this kind of, and then it has, you know, credentialism on its side because the institutions, the intellectual institutions are also compromised. Um, and so it, it has these natural advantages, but what it doesn't have is any kind of mass level of support. And, and, and again, you can just like, it's very easy to nose count that because the total number of people who are like, you know, I don't know, taking time off from the workday to show up at an anti-AI rally is like zero. Um, and the total number of people who are already using AI in their daily lives, right. Very productively and very happily is like a hundred million. <laughs> right. So, so I would say the AI doomer movement has a vanguard with no masses. Um, the pro AI movement right now is a movement that actually has a fair amount of mass support implicitly just by revealed preference by the fact that people are already using AI. What it hasn't had is a vanguard. Um, right, and, but you know, politics doesn't reflect revealed preference, right? Politics re- re- reflects stated preference. That's that's what it is, well, right? So, so, like, you you have a situation sort of. in many cases where people will be, you know, like explicitly, for example, like prohibition, right? You know, as you say in your essay, it's the classic Baptists and the bootleggers. You know, e- even if people might, you know, secretly enjoy alcohol, might think that it's 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 a good thing, you know, they're going to be there's going to be people who you know start a moral panic. You know, there's those preference falsification. There's people you know, saying what is socially acceptable instead of saying what they actually think. I, I, I think, you know, I don't want to be, you know, too pessimistic. I don't want to say, you know, like it's all over. It, it's that like, you know, the, the crackdown is inevitable. I don't think that's the case. I wouldn't be, you know, doing what I'm doing now if that was the case. But I, I, I do think when you say something like they have no mass support, that that, that you're kind of understating, you know, I think there have actually been opinion polls where like people do uh, do support, you know, do support like AI restrictions just because they like hate technology. You know, they're, they're, they're just opposed to new technologies in general. Yeah, I'll totally grant exactly your point. Um, but I would just say this, just social support is, is just social support is fickle. Right. So, so like I said, so like sure. a basic test. So I, yes, I will say in a poll that I hate AI. Will I take an hour out of my lunch break to go to an anti AI rally? Right. Like it just like the, the most marginal <laughs> level of effort. Right. Like the, 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 the most basic test. Will I stop using chat GPT because I hate AI. Right. Will I like throw my iPhone, you know, in the in, you know, in the in, in a lake, you know, because I because I, you know, because I, you know, it's like people in, in practice that, that there's a soft. I think what you're saying is correct, but the soft underbelly to something that's just a social kind of conformance movement uh, or, or, or just stated preference over revealed preference is it's very soft. Let me give you a specific example of that. The people who are the most excited about the AI doomerism, the anti-AI movement in Washington, are the crypto people. 
<laughs> right? Interesting. Because, How so? Well, because all of the anti-crypto energy, not all of it, but a large amount of it that was like running like white hot, like six and 12 months ago, it's now been diverted onto anti-AI, right? And by the way, like any, any given thing in the next six months, like, I mean, look, like, you know, as, as you know, we're headed into a presidential election cycle. It's going to be quite right, dramatic, right. right? Like we're in a war with Russia, right? Like th- there are other, th- there are other things happening in the world, right? And at any given moment, the same herd instinct that kind of brought people to have the sort of stated preference on a, on, on, you know, crypto one day, AI the next day, Trump being indicted for the 14th time, the third day, you know, Russia dropping it, you know, doing something horrible, you know, right? It's like, if if all you have is herd behavior, it's powerful while you have it, but it, it can very easily slip away from you, right? Because the, uh, because the public is fickle. Let, let me they'll make one, one more point, which I think is very, very powerful. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully, ultimately, is the trump card for all this, you know, we'll, we'll see, but but what would hopefully be the case, um, you know, and that's basically, ca- you know, capitalist animal spirits. Um, Right. And so and, and you, you already see this, the micro version of this already happening kind of inside the AI Doomer camp, right, where you have, you know, you have, you know, you have companies, you have entire organizations that are very philosophically devoted to AI Doomerism who are racing as fast as possible to beat each other to market with more and more sophisticated you AI models. For example, uh, you know, they're one of, you know, there's a bunch of these. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so, and, you know, there was actually, uh, on the, there was actually a Vox, uh, of all things, there was a Vox piece, actually, I think yesterday, where the, the, the guy pointed out, actually, you know, look, there, there is a little bit of a mismatch between the idea that you think that this technology is going to destroy the world um, and the fact that you're working so hard to build it. Um, and of course, you know, that, that's being, pre- you know, Elon, Elon is, is pressing that point even harder, right. With the, with the creation of XAI, right. And, and Elon, you know, he's, he obviously speaks for himself, but like he's stated very publicly, you know, that he's very dismayed by the fact that, you know, the organization he originally funded as a nonprofit became a for-profit. So now he's responding with a new, with, with XAI, which is going to be, you know, chartered to, to be fully, you know, open source AI. So, you know, even he's like recalibrated his sense of threat. Um, so anyway, and then you've got these, even these big companies that are in DC with the zoomer, with this kind of doomer argument and they're, and they're also pushing very hard to commercialize all this. And so, and, and it's actually really funny. Um, I, I think this is very funny because I could, I, the, the argument that ultimately capitalist animal spirits are going to win here, you, you could characterize as both a far right argument and a far left argument, right? The far no. right argument is just that the profit motive is e- extremely strong and it's going to dominate <laughs> the far left motive you could actually bemoan this, right? And this is the, um, I've been reading a lot of, uh, you probably know uh, the work of Nick Land, right? Who's like basically, yeah, the, yeah. You, know, the, you know, kind of the philosopher of acceleration and, and, and AI. And then he had this protege, uh, Mark Fisher, um, you know, who is this, this sort of leftist sort of communist writer who ultimately committed suicide, but wrote a bunch of interesting stuff. Oh my. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Mark Fisher wrote this very pessimistic book about the future of everything called, you know, Capitalist Realism. You know, is there no alternative? And and basically, it's a it's it's sort of a far left basically thing saying, yeah, like it's just going to be capitalism. Like it, the, the 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 profit motive is so strong, right? That like ultimately, like in our world as it's conceived, you can have all the ideological arguments you want. Um, ultimately, the profit movement is going to dominate, and there's just so much money to be made with AI. Um, that um, you know, my, you know, quite honestly, my hope my, my hope is that Mark Fisher was right. Right. Yeah. I know. The counter argument to this is, uh, did you know what the Tullock rectangle is? Do you, do you know this guy, <laughs> Gordon Tullock? I know who he is, but I don't know the concept. Okay. So so, so the Tullock rectangle, essentially, the, the idea is that, you know, the money spent on, you know, lobbying or on basically like enforcing. So, so like he he's fascinated on studying rent seeking and on studying essentially like you know, economists model this as price caps, right? It's not always price caps or, uh, um, or sorry, price, um, basically a price fixing 
uh, government price fixing. Uh, he he models this as you know there's you know you know classic microeconomics. There's the Harburger Triangle. There's all the trades that aren't made, and that's some kind of loss. But he, he models like what he, what I think like someone else called the Tulloch rectangle. Um, but but is based on his idea is that um, when there when there's an excess benefit for rent seeking, actually the incentive to enforce that amount of rent seeking is then eaten up uh, at the same time, right? So so let's say you know like um let's say i sell you know let's say you know completely abstractly let's say i sell pharmaceuticals and by creating barriers to entry to my uh competitors then i can make you know a billion dollars more let's say then the incentive for me to keep those barriers to entry in place right is equal to a billion dollars because that's what i'm gaining from them right so there's a kind of equilibrium process there right where um the amount of regulatory barriers or the incentive to create regulatory ba- barriers is kind of equivalent to the expected profit that you would get from right. creating those regulatory barriers. Right. Do you see where I'm going with this with regards to AI? Yeah, but you have to, yes, yes, 100%. But, you know, look, a, a couple <laughs> a couple things. So one is this, is, this is why there's actually a really good argument that there's not nearly enough money in politics. Um, right, right now there's like a giant arbitrage, right? Right, right now the, 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 this process is not efficient, I would argue, because the amount of money you need to spend in politics to capture rents is a fraction of the, of the value of the potential rents. Um, right. So, so arguably number one, we should, the amount of money in politics should be driven up by like, you know, three orders of magnitude so that it becomes precisely so that it becomes actually harder to do what you're describing, describing. We can debate that or not. Um, and then, um, yeah. And then look, the other point is like, look, the, the, like if you're dealing with a single monopolist, um, I think, you know, the, the, the application of your idea is obviously very clear. Um, if you're dealing with a, an oligopoly or a cartel, and I would characterize this sort of nascent kind of AI protectionist, you know, movement as a cart- as an attempt to form a cartel structure, um, you know, the, the problem with a cartel is defection, right? Which is what, you know, OPEC deals with all the time. Um, and so, um, and, and, and so that maybe I could, I could make my hope more precise. My hope would be that the profit incentive for members of the cartel to defect will be so great that ultimately the cartel isn't stable, uh, even if the government wants to cooperate with it. Um, right. and I, I, think, I, I think there's, look, I think there's really indications of that. Look, like, th- th- so, okay, here's, here's an ironic thing that's already playing. Well, two ironic things that are already playing out, right? So a lot of the doomer, a lot of the economic doomer arguments around AI is that AI is this magic technology. And then whoever builds it is going to, you know, what's the phrase? They're going to capture all the value in the light cone of the future universe. Yeah, they, they love saying winner take all. Winner take no. all. But it's like, Just but what wrong. are we... But what do we know already? Like, what do we know already out of the gate, right? How is the most sophisticated AI in the world being deployed? And it's being deployed in two ways. It's being deployed to consumers either for 20 bucks a month or for free, right? And you can go to Microsoft, you know, you can go to Microsoft, you can download the Microsoft Edge browser, which is an excellent browser. um, And you can run the Bing chat for free, right? And it's full GPT-4 connected to the internet, multimodal, like it is amazing, right? Um, So the most sophisticated AI in the world is available for free. Um, and lots of people are already doing this. Um, and then, you know, even, even the companies that are trying to upsell it to consumers, you know, the, the prevailing price is like 20 bucks a month, um, you know, which is like what, four, <laughs> four lattes, right? Not much. Um, so first of all, like it's already being made available to consumers very broadly. And then, and, and by the way, there is no better AI. Like there's no better AI than Bing Chat or GPT-4 that like I can buy for a million dollars, right? Like it, it, it doesn't exist. So it's, it's already out to consumers. And then the other side of it is these, these models are being immediately deployed as cloud services by the big cloud vendors, 
right? Um, and, and it's actually fairly amazing. If you think about it, you have this sort of engine of insight and knowledge that in theory you could use, right? And, you know, I don't know, capture all profits in the stock market or whatever it is that you think you can do with winner take all, you know, kind of AI. And instead what they're doing is they're making it available as a cloud service and, and cloud, look, cloud services are like a big revenue business, but they're not like a great high margin business. Um, and, and, and yet these companies are pushing as hard as possible to do that. And why are they pushing as hard as possible to do that? It's because there's a cloud war you know, they're, they're battling each other for market share. Um, and, you know, they're very determined to show to their shareholders that they're going to be able to get more market share and more cloud revenue by rolling out AI. And so, it, so I would say th these are both examples of how basically defection from, you know, if you take the theoretical cartel that could exist, um, like it's already basically been shattered, um, uh, you know, as a consequence of these, of these more specific incentives. And my, my optimistic hat would be that this is just the beginning. Um, the, the, the defection from here will only grow. Yeah, that's where I'm even more optimistic about it, actually, is that the second layer economy really matters. Like this, this goes back to like the central planning fallacy again, right? Like the idea that, you know, you have one, one generalized model and that, that, you know, solves everything. Yeah, no, like people are going to take, you know, the, the models that we have, they're going to find specific applications of them. You know, you already see these people like you, you see like the specialized VC, um, the, the specialized VC cohort doing exactly this, right? I think this, I don't know, do, do you have the same intuition that the kind of like second order, you know, people who are taking the APIs and using it to do interesting things that those people matter a lot? Yeah, so it's not just, by, by the way, it's not just taking the APIs, it's also actually building their own models, right? And, 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 and again, this Llama announcement today is going to accelerate this because it's going gonna, it's gonna to make that even more, more, more practical. Right, so, right, that's so fascinating. Sorry, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so basically, I think the way to think about it, so, so, so the big question, this big kind of central versus kind of distributed question I would characterize is, does AI roll out into the world over the next decade the way Google Search did or the way that microprocessors did? Um, yes, exactly. Right. And if it rolls out the way that Google search did, then basically everybody just goes to Google and searches on everything and Google has a monopoly on search. And then you get, you get into this kind of, you know, just, I don't know if you're a doomer, it's a utopian world. If you're anybody else, it's a dystopian world of sort of centralized control. Um, and, and you look, that's, that's possible. And, and I, I can, you know, I can, I can certainly steel man that, you know, that argument both on technical grounds and on, on regulatory grounds. Um, but look, the, I think what the technology wants is it wants to roll out in, in, in the way that microprocessors rolled out, right? Or the way that operating systems rolled out or the way that the web rolled out, which is it wants to roll out to everybody. And it wants to roll out in a pyramid structure where, you know, sort of like computers, you know, just like microprocessors, there's a few giant mainframes, right? And then there's a larger number of, you know, mid-sized computer systems. And then there's a much larger number of PCs. And then there's a much, much larger number of smartphones. And then by the way, even beyond that, there's a much, much, much larger number of embedded devices, right? Chips in your microwave and your car and your doorknob and everything else. Um, and, you know, how many microprocessors are in the world today? I, you know, I don't even know the number, but, you know, a tr it wouldn't surprise me if it's a trillion. Um, Right. And so and, and you know, right. now that you have open source models like like like, like Llama 2 and so forth, like the, 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 the sort of uh, possibility of that pyramidal world is, I think, very real. By the way, again, Animal Spirits, um, that world has a lot of money. There's a lot of people, you know, betting heavily on that for, just from a financial standpoint. And so the chip companies are like tremendously enthusiastic, uh, you know, about that world for obvious reasons. Um, okay, so 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 that, that, that that's the other world, and then and then why might that world work? Like, because the argument goes basically, it's like, well, why would you ever want a smaller model if you could basically just ask a centralized God model, and it always gives you a better answer? And there's 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 a few answers to that. One is the smaller models that are more decentralized. Number one, they're going to be a lot cheaper to run, right? And so you're going to be able to build AI into many many more things cost effectively, a, and that's going to matter a lot. 
Um, uh, B, um, you're going to actually, a, a lot of the future use cases have to do with what's called embodiment, right? You're going to actually want AI to have a local knowledge of what's happening, right? Like in the real world around where it's located, right? Um, and so, you know, your car is going to want to know about the road around it. You know, your doorknob is, go is going to want to know about, you know, everybody who touches it, right? There, there's a lot of embodiment that needs to happen. And this, of course, leads ultimately to a world of kind of full, full robotics, right? Which is where this is all headed. Um, and then, and then third, and this is, this is really entertaining, but it's, it's really important. So the God models, right, are going to be heavily scrutinized as they already are in terms of what kind of outputs they can give, right? They're, they're the ones that are going to be scrutinized the most, right? In the same way that the biggest social networks are the most scrutinized, the biggest search engines are the most scrutinized. Um, one of the really entertaining things about these big models is when you use their APIs, they apply their trust and safety rules to their APIs, right? Um, right. And that is very comical. What we're finding with our startups is that's very comical because you will have a startup that's building like a new kind of like, let's say marketing automation system, what, you know, whatever for tracking customers in a business. And they use a, a, a God models API to do that. And they, and, and so it's a, it's a B2B application. There's no public impact, whatever, you know, it's for running like a, you know, a hotel or something like that, you know, better customer service in a hotel. And it's making API calls to the God model and the God model is responding, you know, you know, basically like, oh, you can't ask that question. Like, you know, basically that question is racist. <laughs> right. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. I reported some of this out like very early on. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's like you're, you're a developer of B2B software. You're only going to tolerate a response, you know, a behind the scenes API response that your query was racist one time. And you're going to be like, all right, screw it. And you're going to rip out that API and you're going to build your own model. Um, and, and I think basically that's that's already happening. Yeah. And, and the kind of circumvention. I don't know. I think the circumvention is pretty easy right now. Maybe maybe on purpose, you know. Um, yeah, I, I do think that that's not going to... That arms race is always going to be in the direction of the uh, circumventor, I think, just, just in terms of incentives. Um, I, I do want to talk about some of the earlier, some of the earlier things you talk about, right? Like, so, so one thing that you said is like that the that the independent models will be will be faster to run, or they'll be they'll be smaller. What what's stopping the what's stopping the industry versions? I mean, like uh, OpenAI is kind of already doing this, right? Of just releasing their own smaller models that are even more efficient. Yeah, I think that's great. I think they should. I think that's awesome. Right, but but isn't that more like you know they'll have more resources? Of course, they'll have more. Um, they'll have more economies of scale with regards to hardware. They'll have more. Um, you know, they'll have more buying power. What's stopping them from producing uh, like a smaller model at a at a better price? Right. Oh. Yeah, but I, I think they should. I mean, I think that would be pure. I think that would be pure good. Um, I think it'd be great. I, mean, more, more, I think more competition there. One of the things Peter Peter Thiel and I very much disagree on is the role of competition. Um, and this is an example, which is that more more competition, better. Uh, more more choice, better. Motivating for everybody. Um, and then you know specifically um, to our conversation, you know, a smaller model from one of the big God model companies. You know, the the, the obvious question would be, well, is okay, is it going to operate under the same rules as the God model? Right. And the same restrictions as the God model. Right. And so if it's if it's if it's just another model in the cloud that just happens to be cheaper, but has all of the downsides of dealing with a model in the cloud that you don't control, that has policies that you don't support and aren't relevant to you, um, then it's not going to fill in the niche in the ecosystem that the open source models are going to fill in. Right. Or the, or the possibly other productized you know, models um, are going to fit into. Um, and so, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll be a very in other words, like the, the question becomes very practical, which is, do I use this sort of miniature God model? with all of the pros and cons of it, or do I use, you know, Llama 2, 
um, open source uh, or some adaptation of it. And I think that's a great, I, I, I think absolutely that's the kind of thing we should, we should see. That's the kind of thing that should play out in the market and we should see what the pros and cons are. Right, right. Okay. In that case, I don't think we disagree too much. Uh, I'm just, I'm just skeptical of the idea that, you know, like the, yeah, I'm skeptical of the idea that the independent models will be faster per se. Oh, um, so the faster, then, so the faster, the faster is just a, a lot of the faster is just, uh, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons it could be faster. So one is just like, so one of, one of the technical questions is basically how big does a model need to be to be, to be effective? Right. Um, and so, right. And so, you know, what, what is the load? What, what is the, what is the chip, you know, the, the load on chips required? What's the speed, right? What's the level of, you know, all, all these things, like how do you optimize, right? Our big models versus small models might get optimized differently. Um, you know, uh, like all, all these kinds of questions. Um, and then there's all the, of course, network round trip things, right? Like how often are you going out to the network versus just processing locally? Um, and so, uh, and so, so there's all those kind of, these are, these are just classic systems, systems design questions that everybody asks now of whether they want computation to run locally or to have it run in the cloud. And there's, there's just, you know, there's pros and cons. Um, but the other is, let me, let me really stress this, this, this concept of embodiment, um, right? We, you know, today we think about yeah, go AI. Deeper on that. Yeah. Yeah. So today we think about AI as something that's that's basically disembodied, right? So 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 you know, ChatGPT or Midjourney is running up in the giant cloud, and it's being fed you know enormous amounts of training data, and that training data, a lot of that's derived from human experience, right? And kind of physical reality, like a lot of the images Midjourney is being trained on are obviously photographs of the real world and so forth. But there's this layer of like indirection and delay, right? Like no nobody's like nobody's taking a photo. Nobody, to my knowledge, like Midjourney is not being trained by people, you know, taking, you know, a billion photos in real time and uploading them to Midjourney. Like it's a, it's a, there's a delay to the training data. Well, it's like chat GPT, right? It's like, it famously tells you it's training data stopped in September, 2021. And right. And, and, and look for a lot of, for a lot of what you call kind of abstract questions or like, disem, you know, things that don't require embodiment, like just, you know, kind of, you know, intellectually abstract things that, that, mo- that model works very well. Um, there's this whole other world, though, of AI applied in particular to physical reality. And so, you know, it's, it's AI in the self-driving car. It's AI in the, you know, it's in the, you know, in the light bulb, uh, you know, doing power optimization, you know, in the room or in the doorknob doing access control um, or in your oven, you know, you know, baking, you know, baking you the, you know, the perfect pizza um, or it's, you know, ultimately it's robotics, right? Ultimately, it's your household robot that's doing the dishes, right? Um, or, um, you know, something like that. Um, and for all of those applications, right. And, you know, this is everything. This is, you know, you can do security cameras and, and, you know, all kinds of defensive systems of all kinds. Um, you know, for those systems, like the, 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 the training data is like real world, real time right there. Right. And so you're, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to want to have a system that's an integrated hardware software system that is, is sort of physically present embodied, as they say, embodied in the world, like a robot of some kind. Um, and it's gathering data in real time and processing, analyzing that data in real time. And that's just a very different, that, that's just a very different technological optimization problem um, than what the, than what the God models are doing. Um, and so I, I think that, that, and so, and specifically the other shoe that's going to drop here is basically the, 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 there's a revolution of robotics that now, now is right around the corner. Like we, for a long time, it was theoretical, but now we kind of see how to actually do this. Um, and, and that's really going to change, I think, how people view this stuff. And it's going to change the trade-offs of how these systems get built. Right. So something that something that really fascinates me is that, yeah. So 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 we talk about. I mean, like we we we've heard the story before, right? Maybe turning the sociological argument on you a bit. You know, we we've heard the you know robotics are almost here. You know, several times before, right? E- even you know a young man like myself has heard that several times before. Um, why is this time different? 
Yeah. So look, technological revolutions, um, the technological shifts, uh, just at the, at the sort of applied level, like what we're talking about here, they just they they follow this pattern that's just like shockingly. I wouldn't say it's predictable, but it's certainly descriptive after the fact. Um, which is it, 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 it's almost always when you have something technological that just like starts to work. And you could call that like the personal computer in the early 1980s or the internet in the mid 1990s or AI right now. Um, basically what, what you find, or by the way, before, you know, television in the 1930s, 1940s, it's the same thing. Um, basically what you find is the, the, these things that look like they're kind of overnight breakthroughs, they aren't what happens was there was a backstory, right? And, and the backstory usually was the way I read the history is usually 30 to 40 years of prior attempts to make the thing work that didn't happen that, you know, that basically did, did, did not deliver on. Um, with AI, it's actually an even more extreme story. It's an 80, year, it's an 80 year backstory, right? The original neural network paper was published 80 years ago in 1943. Right. Um, and so it was an 80 year journey to get from here to there. And then of course, along the way, what you have every single time, by the way, this happened with automobiles also. <laughs> Very interesting backstory to cars. Um, uh, by the way, the, for example, the original Detroit was not even Detroit. It was Cleveland. <laughs> right? Like Cleveland was ground zero for like auto hobbyists like in the late 1800s. And then it actually it actually didn't even stick there and actually migrated to Detroit. So that's how long it took for, for cars to develop. They actually had to move cities. Um, and so you, you just have this thing where you kind of have waves of engineers and entrepreneurs over time trying to get the thing to work, trying to get the thing to work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And, and when I say it doesn't work, what I mean mean is the the technology does not get delivered to the market in a way that it's packaged in a way that the market wants to consume it. And and usually what that is, is it's like, okay, the components are just not quite ready yet. You know, the, the chips aren't fast enough. The power isn't there. Um, you know, the, the, the software isn't quite sophisticated enough. It doesn't have quite the right user interface. It's still too expensive. Uh, I'll just give you an example. I went to a launch party when I first came to Silicon Valley. I went to a launch party in 1994 for something called the General Magic Communicator. Uh, and it was this super white hot, you know, consumer, uh, consumer electronics startup in the early nineties with a lot of Apple, Apple people, Andy Hertzfeld, who designed the Mac UI and a bunch of these people went to this company, General Magic, and they basically built the iPhone <laughs> in, in like, you know, between basically 1988, 1993, they built the iPhone. They shifted in 1994. Um, and it just like completely flopped. Um, and, and why did it flop? Like it had basically all the same functions as the iPhone, which was a huge hit 20 years later. Um, you know, it was too heavy. It was too expensive. It was too slow. The screen was black and white, low resolution. The radio was, you know, low bandwidth, you know, it just like, uh, right. It wasn't, it just wasn't ready yet. And so anyway, like the, 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 the day job, you know, my day job in venture capital is basically to try to figure out, okay, you've got this idea. It will probably happen at some point. You've got this entrepreneur sitting here today that has a judgment that now is the time. If you look at the history of all entrepreneurs, a lot of the smartest ones are just simply too early. On the other hand, most things do eventually happen. And then when they happen, they turn out to be, you know, really big deals. And those companies end up, you know, obviously being, being very valuable. Um, but it is it is very easy to be too early on these things. And look, maybe I am too early on robotics. Um, I would just say that, you know, six months ago, if you'd asked me, do we have a UI for, you know, basically um, interacting with a robot in the real world, um, I would have said no. Um, and now I would say yes. Um, and that's, you know, as, that is a step function change, um, you know, that's very important. Um, and then, and then look, there, there, there's, there's research, a lot of the most interesting research right now in, in, in language models is figuring out how to use them for planning. And that's starting to work really well. Um, and then multimodal AIs, uh, LLMs are about to come out. And so that, you know, has the you know, potential of solving the perception problem in a really interesting way. So I, I so I, I can't like declare that we're on the cusp of the revolution of robotics, but boy, it sure feels like we're getting closer and, and we might be almost there. Right. But, but like every time this happens, there, there are, 
I don't, I don't know. I, I haven't done, you know, like a micro comparison of like all of these different breakthroughs, you know, what breakthroughs were there the last time people were excited about this. Right. Uh, I think like one of the big things was like early self-driving cars and then they started to run into edge cases and so on. Right. Like, but this, but this is the thing, like the self-driving cars. And by the way, there's another phenomenon here that you you, you may have a, a touch of that I, I also have on a routine on a routine routine basis in my life, which is just we have this phenomenon we call scar tissue, right? Which is if you've ever in your life tried to get something to work and not been able to get it to work, you will spend the rest of your life arguing that it can't be done, right? And you will you will be like hypercritical of every new of every of every new wave. And actually, the thing that drives you the craziest right, is this is about a certain uh, certain fanfic writer. Well, it's, it applies to a lot of us. Um, and, um, it's a very natural human thing. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's ego insulation, right? It's like, okay, I couldn't get the thing to work. And so therefore nobody else should be able to right? and it would be tremendously insulting and damaging to my ego if somebody else did. And so you, you have this, you have this phenomenon where, where people who try to get something to work generally argue against it for the rest of their lives. And then you have this other phenomenon that drives them crazy, which is the kids that come along that actually get it to work. They often don't even know the history. Right, <laughs> they don't even know the failed attempts from like 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and then of course, right. that, and why would they, right? <laughs> right, and why would they? You know, they they've got you know they're actually just you know they're busy building the thing, um, and so that that drives the veterans you know even crazier, and so you, you have this long. It, it's always this question of the venture business, which is should you know. If you're normally even make an investment, you want to do due diligence. A big part of what you want to do when you do due diligence and investment is talk to experts, right? And so right. there's always this question when we're back, we're going to go back into a tech company that was some kid with a crazy idea, which is like, okay, should we go talk to the people who tried to make that idea work 10 or 20 years earlier and failed, right? And, and it's like, are we going to learn things, you know, to prevent us from making a bad decision? Or are we just going to be getting a blast of basically ego protection and bile, right, aimed at the new generation? You know, basically, how dare they try to do something that we already tried and failed? And so anyway, like, like I said, the, the problem is none of this is pre, none of this is predictive. Like I don't or at least I don't have a model for like, OK, it failed four times before and now it's going to work the fifth time. Like or, it, you know, it took 20 years, you know, it takes 20 years or 40 years or 80 years or whatever. I don't I don't I don't know how to use this predictively, but I will tell you just looking after the fact. Um, and, and you can stress test this idea by looking at historical innovations. Um, uh, after the fact, what you discover is there was typically this kind of backstory. My favorite example of the backstory is actually television. Uh, there's this great book called Tube, which is a, the history of, of television. And it, you know, television is kind of credited in its in the form in the form that rolled out, which is electronic television um, uh, with uh, you know with ray tubes. Um, is sort of credited to this, this, this guy, Philo Farnsworth, who was like this kind of Silicon Valley like character in like the 1920s, 1930s in San Francisco. But it turns out there was a 40 year backstory to television even before Farnsworth. And actually the first television was in like the 1890s. Um, and it was this Scottish inventor who's this crazy guy. And he literally made mechanical television. Right. So he, he, made tel he made television work before he had anything, any sort of electronic mechanism capable of rendering an image. He rendered the image mechanically. How do you render an image mechanically? He had spinning wooden blocks um, representing pixels. <laughs> right. Right, so, right. So he built a mechanical device, right, that would receive telegraph. It would receive basically the equivalent of like Morse code messages over telegraph or, or over wireless, right? Um, and it would interpret those mechanically right, with, with a very simple electrical circuit. It would interpret those, but it would display those mechanically and it would spin the wooden blocks to the, you know, whatever red, blue, green, whatever color on the different side of the blocks and represent the picture. And like in his mind's eye, he knew what was possible. Like he knew that he could like remotely broadcast images and receive them. And he like knew what this meant, but the, the technology of his time, all he had were these spinning wooden blocks and he would go around and pitch this to people. And they just thought he was like completely, you know, completely crazy. 
right? And it's like, well, you know, was he crazy? It's like, well, yes, he was crazy in that he was trying to do something that in retrospect, we now know was impossible to do with the technology of his era. But on the other hand, he was actually visionary. Like he, he saw what the thing would be, you know, decades in advance of the people who ultimately made it work. And I, I think that's a, I think that's a normal phenomenon. I think that's what's happened. By the way, that's what's happened in AI. Um, and I, I, and, right, and, I right. and I do, I do believe that's what will happen in, in robotics, even if I can't predict the exact timing. Yeah, I think like, yeah, for the, for the audience, of course, you know this, right? But like for the audience, you only have to be right once. You only, you know, you, you bet on that kind of thing like 10 times. And if you're right once, then, you know, you'll be, you'll be very wealthy. Yeah, that's um, right. As you know, you personally have done. So yeah, so, so this is something that, that interests me. I think like the machine learning, I think like, I don't know if this has always been true throughout history, but I think certainly in my generation, the and I mean this in like the best way possible, you know, I identify with many of these people, but you know, the, the machine learning community has been like weirdly autistic, um, just really lacking in people who like really sell, who are really enthusiastic about selling the product. Maybe you, there are a few exceptions, like Sam Altman maybe is is an exception, but a lot of machine learning engineers, you know, like they're they're really like they're really into the statistics and they're really into like the technical details, but they're not really, you know, that they're, they're they're not really marketing uh, people. And to me, like this this is. I, I've said this like once or twice on Twitter that I think that like it, it would actually be beneficial if there's more of the kind of MBA personality type, the kind of person who's more focused on product market fit. Um, do, do you think that that's true? Do you think that that's false or do you think that it's like irrelevant? Yeah. So I guess maybe I would put another twist on it, um, which is you, you do tend to see generations of, of, of companies, um, you know, when, mm-hmm. when things start to work. And I, maybe the way I would describe it, maybe it's, if this is the same thing you're talking about or not, but the way I describe it is the early things that work are very much from the fringe. Um, you know, they're kind of by definition, it's only really people on the fringe who work on fringe ideas. Right. It, it's not people who are like comfortable in the status quo real world, but kind of by definition. And, and you know that because they've chosen to work on something in the fringe. Right. Like, well, you just take all your machine learning engineers you're talking about, like they could all be making probably, you know, over the last you know 50 years, you know, every single person who worked in the field probably could have made more money had they just like worked on Wall Street or something. Right. Um, or like worked on like marketing automation software or like, you know, search engine, you know, ads or something like that. And so, you know, there, there is this kind of personality sort that takes place where they, they, they tend to be people more attracted to the fringe, more attracted to new ideas that haven't yet been proven. Um, but, but, but then having said that, that means that they are, you know, they are people on the fringe and people on the fringe generally aren't just on the fringe in the area of what they choose to work on. They're usually also on the, on the fringe in many other, you know, kind of areas of their life. Right. And so, <laughs> for example, they often have, let's say fringe, um, food consumption patterns, um, or they have fringe. Oh, I thought you were going to say political views or political views. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or like fringe yeah. sexual ethics, right. Or like <laughs> right fringe drug consumption patterns. Right. Like, you know, it, 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 it's, it's the French personality type. And, and, the, and the great thing about the French personality type is they come up with all the new stuff. Right. And this is this is, you know, these are the people in previous generations we would have called the Bohemians. Right. Like, you know, the, these are the people who write like all the good literature. These are the people who do all the good art. You know, this is, you know, they're just, they, you know, they do all this, you know, Isaac Newton on the French, like Isaac Newton, um, you know, spends 20 years working on alchemy. Right. Um and so, so, so they're just on the fringe. And then the nature of it is, yeah, sometimes they like start companies or sometimes they, let's even more generalize it out. 
sometimes they kind of saddle up and they try to make something a movement. Um, but but for the most part, they don't do that, right? They don't they don't they don't start movements. They don't um, you know create large organizations. They don't start companies. Um, they don't run companies. And and again, the reason for that is just if they were the kind of person to do that, they would have been doing that the whole time as opposed to trying to make this new thing work. Um, and and so anyway, so then what happens is you basically get a second generation at some point. And this and like the internet precedent on this was like the internet companies formed in like 1992 were like all companies from people on the fringe. Um, and then the companies formed in like 1995 were all basically the type that you're talking about. It's like the the professionals show up, right? Um, and you know, by the way, pros and cons. The good with the professionals is they know how to organize. Right. And they, so they know how to build something for scale and they know how to like, you know, and then, and then, you know, then out of that, you get like your Amazons and your Ebays and your, you know, Googles and Yahoo's and everything that followed, um, you know, but, and, and then the people, you know, who were on the fringe are like, well, you know, shit, like what happened? Like our, our thunder got stolen by these, you know, people with like, you know, better, you know, better social manners, like, you know, that, that's, that's terrible. You know, optimistically, it's kind of a partnership, right? And, and, and actually, a lot of what we do with our companies is we try to kind of bring together those two personality types under one roof, where you've, you know, ideally got somebody who can like make the technology work and you've got somebody who can go out and sell it. You know, pessimistically, you would say that it's just a, you know, it's sort of a lost opportunity for the people in the fringe that they couldn't do the big thing. It, maybe it's just the way of the world. You know, maybe it's just, just what's required for broader social adoption. Right. The, the kind of counter argument to this, or like the kind of inverse argument is like, what if it just brings in a wave of grifters, right? Do you, do you think that that's a concern? Oh, yeah. Well, so I, I'll generalize that out even further, which is to say, basically, again, this is a historical argument. Basically, every new technology has led to some level of speculative bubble. Um, and, you know, I, I mentioned uh, uh, television earlier. So there was like a radio bubble in the 1920s, right? There was like an electronics bubble, a so-called tronics bubble in the 1960s. There were, by the way, there was, there was an AI bubble in the 80s. Uh, that I remember. Um, and there were, you know, people out right, of the press right. making all kinds of promises about like expert systems and AI doctors and all these things that didn't happen. Um, and so there, you know, you, you know, if you go back further in history, you get, you know, the Mississippi bubble and all these things. Um, and so basically anytime there's like a big fundamental technology shift on deck, um, yeah, you're, you're going to get a wave of speculative enthusiasm. Um, you know, the, 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 argument, the argument, you know, you generally from the left is that that's, you know, that that's bad, right. Cause, and, and, you know, there is, there can be an element of badness to it, which is, you know, obviously people, you know, when they're, when things, when speculative bubbles, speculative bubbles do end up often including scams, um, right. And, and, and full on grifting. And so obviously people can get taken advantage of so that, you know, the, the, there is an argument, there is a bad kind of dimension to that, but the good side of the speculative bubble is the huge surge of money and talent that comes into the field, which is what's actually required to make these things work. Uh, and and my, my theory on this is you, you are much better off living in a society that has too many speculative bubbles around new technologies that has too few, right? Um, because you, you need that kind of catalytic effect to make new things work. Um, and if you live in a society that does not have that, they're not going to have just like rational deployment of new technologies. What they're going to have is no deployment of new technologies. Um, and so it's just kind of, this is one of those kind of human nature things, which is, you know, kind of pick your poison. And I, you know, right. But, but like the Peter Thiel argument is that these speculative bubbles drive out the actual innovation, right? That the actual innovation isn't done in the speculative bubbles. They, they may be caused the speculative bubbles, right? But, but that like the speculative bubbles actually kind of place a cap on there. Uh, on their innovation, right? I don't think so. So I, my, my understanding, and you know, look, maybe I'm wrong on this, but uh, like my understanding, just kind of looking at it, living through several waves of these now, is that that's not quite right. So a big thing, here's something people on the fringe generally don't understand that I, I kind of wish that they would, which is 
well, the simple form of the argument is like, if you build a better mousetrap, the world is not in fact necessarily going to beat <laughs> past your door. Like a lot of new technologies get parked on the shelf for quite a while before people pick them up. Um, you know, the, the Sims, you know, Sims, the Sims example I gave earlier as, as an example. So like, it's, it's not enough to just build the thing. The more sophisticated version of that argument, which I think is very important is just like, look, the world is a big and complicated place. Um, and the, the path for a new technology to be able to ultimately get into everybody's hands and reach its full potential, that path is going to require a level of investment and effort that's just like way beyond what most innovators kind of have in mind when they build something for the first time. Somebody has to come in and basically build the army, right? Somebody has to build the company with, you know, a hundred thousand employees. Somebody has to pour the, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, kind of into that. Somebody, by the way, the product needs to be finished. Like the product needs to be picked up and it's got a nascent form and like applied to the real world, right? And probably a thousand different ways. Right. And so somebody needs to like pick up the ball and basically run with it. Right. And, you know, which is why you get these things, you know, the software is the, the, the most fascinating one in this because it's like all, all the great software is built by a very small handful of people up front. And then you kind of blink and 20 years later, you've got some giant company with like 50,000 engineers. Right. And you're like, what on earth are all those engineers doing? And, and what they're doing is they're finishing it. Right. They're 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 taking whatever was the kernel of the breakthrough and they're applying it in ways that, you know, eight billion people on planet Earth are going to be able to take advantage of. Um, and, and so, so somebody has to do all of that and, 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 that, and there's a big money component to that. And there's a big, you know, kind of headcount staffing component to that. There's a big organizational component to that. There are political dimensions, you know, as we, we've been talking about to that and somebody has to do that. And if nobody does that, the technology is just still going to be sitting on the shelf 20 years later, like people just aren't going to be using it. Um, and so, and so you, you, yeah, you, you have to have both sides. Um, you do get the occasional figure, right? You do get the occasional like Bill Gates, right? Where it's like, he's where he was, he was definitely, you know, involved at the very beginning. And then also was the guy who was able to build the engine, um, you know, more often, you know, or maybe Steve, Steve jobs, you know, be the other kind of classic example of that, you know, maybe Elon, um, you know, more often, this is just, these are just two totally different kinds of people. And then you just have this repeated pattern of, of, of the people in the fringe thinking that, you know, kind of these sociopathic people with great hair, you know, kind of, it kind of took it away from them. By the way, um, I think you could say the same thing is true in the arts, right? Like, you, you know, who else are we describing? We're also describing David Geffen, right? Like somebody right. had to, some, somebody had to pick up hippie music in the 1960s and turn it into a mass market phenomenon because the hippies were not going to do it on their own. And so it's, 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 it's part and parcel of basically taking these new ideas and bringing them to everybody. Yeah, I, I do think there's this fascinating thing that happens where kind of status is sort of, I mean, like, like why, like, there's one reading of this where like status is kind of miss, uh, or, or like there's an unnecessary backlash to the people who are actually finding product market fit that I don't really understand, right? Is it just envy? Is it just because they're successful? Or is there something about that personality type that's kind of disliked? I, I think it's that they're. I think it's that they're the people who come in. I think it's because they steal the thunder from the people on the fringe, right? And so, and 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 part of it is the people on the fringe will get very upset about this, um, you know. And you know, and you could argue for legitimate reasons, but you could also argue like it's their own fault because they didn't carry their own thing forward. Um, and you know, this is a discussion. Is, I it, is it really them though? Like, like, is it really them that's antagonistic towards oh. like the entrepreneurs or is it like a different group of people? Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's that, but I mean, I think that's the core, like that, that's, that's how it starts. Cause it's like, these people aren't cool. 
<laughs> right? Like they're opportunists, right? Uh, you know, they picked up somebody else's work and carried it forward. And so they, they, that's kind of the beginning of the chipping away of the moral legitimacy of, of, yeah, of you know, the, of the, of the scale of the scaled entrepreneur. And then, yeah, look, and then all the anti-capitalist, you know, all the, all the standard anti-capitalist energies, you know, obviously form up and that's, you know, it's, it's you know, <laughs> it's just, you know, Nietzsche identified that a long time ago, uh, you know, it's resentment. Um, uh, you know, and then I don't know what else, like, you know, look, they're, you know, empire builders, you know, they, you know, everything else we discussed, right. You know, they, they upset the power structure of society. Um, you know, they upset, uh, you know, they upset how things have always worked. Um, you know, the, the mental model, the mental model, the other mental model that kind of maps a little bit to the Sims model of how societies adopt new technologies and new ideas, um, or absorb them is the Douglas Adams model where he, he says it's, it's all generational. Um, and he says, if you're, uh, you know, whatever, if there's a new thing, if you're below the age of 15, the new thing is just how the world has always worked. It's totally natural. Um, if you're between the ages of 15 to 35, the new thing is super cool and you might be able to make a career out of it. And if you're above the age of 35, the new thing is evil and horrible and will destroy society. Right. And so, you know, I do think there is this like societal reordering that takes place. Um, uh, this is actually very interesting in the crypto in the crypto wars. This has been actually really fascinating because um, virtually all of the people who are super anti crypto are all fifteen above. Um, even very anti capitalist people who are like forty and below are not that anti crypto because they just right right yeah that's fascinating right they just can't bring themselves like they just kind of know in their gut it's like no actually it's just like going to be the thing and then by the way like all my supporters like and use it anyway so like you know i'm not gonna like i'm not gonna saddle up with you know some 80 year old to go try to kill it so anyway yeah, like, yeah you know, so, real... society does change you know society does change the people who drive that change you know are both you know lionized and and probably hated maybe in, in equal equal degrees yeah i think that the, the the trend here right the, the the trend here of age i mean like you know you, you you can argue that it's sort of a kind of wealth transfer thing right that 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 it is like the the actual i don't know actually I, I don't know how 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 much i actually believe this but there's like an extreme version of this argument of like oh they're like already guaranteed by social security they're already guaranteed by all of this basically like they are they are set and they are basically you know this is the kind of eric weinstein argument right they're worried that if people start paying attention uh, as to like where where the money is going that no matter like what what how much innovation is is there that you know once people start realizing where the money is going that it's all it's game over for them yeah well there's and then there's the other irony right which is you know the current generation of people in control are kind of you know the boomers and the boomers who are in control now are just you know kind of between the ages of 60 and 80 you know, and the great iron, and you know, they're just as you as you know, and as Eric talks about a lot, like they're not letting go, right? They're they're going to continue to run everything in some cases into their apparently into their nineties, um, you know, even in the face of <laughs> increasingly obvious senility. Um, and of course, you know, the great historical irony of that is this was the revolutionary generation, right, of the sixties and seventies, right? And so the, these were the people who were the most fired up to like you know basically fight the man, and then they are correspondingly the most determined people to remain the man. <laughs> so. See, see, like I wasn't alive for this. I, I'm not sure if that was a psyop or not, right? Like, like the, the, <laughs> I, I don't mean this in like the strong sense of like, uh, where, where, where the hippies like directly funded by the CIA. That's not, that's not what I mean. But like, people talk about like teenage rebellion. To me, that's like that's like a technological change, right? It's people finding, um, it's people finding television. It's like it's it's like it's a domestic color revolution. That's what it is, right? It's not you know children you know being. The, the idea that like children being like generically rebellious always seemed like total bullshit to me. 
that that just seemed wrong. They just found a new kind of like father figure in the television. And, you know, now now the kind of cultural preference of the people on television, actually, it's still kind of like this, right? It's just that it's more associated with the establishment than with uh, with the current generation, you know? Maybe if like the Chinese Communist Party, you know, takes a heavy hand on TikTok, then we'll then we'll get another chance to test this. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's a lot to that. And, you know, these days it, you could argue it's just like television versus the Internet is kind of this this battle, right? It's like, you know, boomers versus millennials or Zoomers or something. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the, the people, the sort of quote unquote revolutionaries in the 60s and 70s, you know, they were, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit more proximate to them. Um I was a kid when they were doing their thing, but, um, you know, they, they had specific issues, you know, they had the Vietnam war and they had, you know, environmental stuff and so forth that they were in, you know, corruption of government. They had specific issues they were definitely fighting, but you know, to your point, like I think in the fullness of time, it's like the majority of the thing was just flat out the way, you know, the term they used at the time was, you know, hip, hip, hip versus square. Um, and you were either with it or you weren't. Um, and you know, if you were, you had all of the politically correct views on the one side. And if you weren't, you were hopelessly stuck in the past. Um, and yeah, that's just like a straight up power fight. Right. Exactly. It's, you know, it's, it's conformity. It's yeah, like right. worse conformity, if anything. Yeah, yeah. All the hippies. Well, that's the funny thing, right? All the hippies dressed identically, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. It, all it, the, it's a, all the punk rockers, right? Exact same, you know, exact same leather jackets, exact same, you know, tattoos. Um, so yeah. Yeah. The, the kind of story, the, the, the 60s as a kind of like new age of conformity culture, you know, as like turning the tide and actually making things significantly more conformist. That that's a story that hasn't really been. You get like there are things that are adjacent to this, right? Um, bonfire of the vanities, maybe, but like the framing of it as like a totally like conformist. You know, like like boomer. Like it is a boomer culture. We understand this now, right? Like like people my age understand this now that like it was boomerism right or like that, that like boomerism is a culture of conformity but like people need to like project that backwards i think like the projection backwards here is actually the correct version you know the, the correct version is that like boomerism you know they were always boomers it's just that it's just that like now now we can tell what boomerism really is about yep exactly and they are going to they're they they in many ways are guaranteeing that we're going to figure it out because they just simply will not relinquish power so right, right, exactly. So, so something that was really interesting to me, you talked about like, like not really being able to convince people, but like obviously there's like some, there, there's like some time in which people's preferences are formed, right? Like, whether that's childhood, you know, there's, there's some genetic bases to these things. But like, obviously, a lot of it is based on, you know, it, it is based on preferences of people around them what what is like the you know what is the kind of um machiavellian strategy for kind of political victory if you can no longer if you can no longer uh persuade people yeah so to be clear so i think persuasion in the general sense fails i do think there are two specific points where people are persuadable um and and th and these are really the two these are kind of the two that i have in mind when i like write about things or talk about things and so there are two very specific points and they're very specific stages of life um so number one is when they're teenagers right um and so um so it's actually jordan peterson had a really good thing on this um he talked about this uh years ago and he said um Basically, is that like one of the reasons why like the education system like is so such a hot constant topic of like political this and that and you know that so many people get like whammied with like anti capitalism or whatever in college? He says a lot of that is uh, if you if you get kids who are in their teens or early twenties and they have not thought seriously about a topic just because they just because they're young, 
the first person to like explain the world to them in detail on that topic basically like puts for, in, for the most part puts the whammy on them right it's just like people people will just basically buy the first explanation that they get and they'll just kind of dig in hard on it um and so you know and you see you see that you know acting out today which is like if you are a, you know sort of socially conform conformist compliant kind of person and you come up through the modern american education high school and college system you come out with a very predictable set of you know sort of these you know kind of beliefs um, you know, if you, if you grew up as a teenager on the internet, <laughs> you know, you come out with kind of a very different, you know, very different set of beliefs. And it's just, you know, and again, to your point, some of it's a personality sort, but, but some of it's like just who, who is explaining stuff to you. And so I, I do think there, there is fundamentally a battle for, for the kids. And I always think a lot, a lot of who I'm writing about, uh, writing for and, and speaking for is, you know, sort of like me as a 16 year old, you know, basically trying to start to figure things out for the first time and to hopefully have somebody who can explain, you know, things in a, in a rational way. Um, the other, the other side of it is, uh, people who get disillusioned. Um, and you know, and this is the sort of politically, this is the time honored tradition from left to right that, you know, a lot of people go on in their later years. Um, uh, but you know, just more generally it's, you know, people who have been in the belly of the beast for, you know, whatever, 10, 20, 30 years. And at some point they're just like, okay, this is wrong. Right. And, and, and you know, like, and most people don't do that. Like most people probably don't rebel. Uh, they just stay conformist, but like some set of people and, and I, you know, in, in particular, I would say the smarter and more interesting people, you know, they'll hit their, you know, whatever, late thirties, forties, late forties, they'll start to be in the room where decisions are made. You know, they'll, they'll meet more and more of the people who are in positions of power and they'll be like, okay, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, this is not what I thought it was. Um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll see the consequence of decisions made with good intentions, uh, play out in the form of bad results. They'll start to become suspicious of the good intentions, you know, as they should. Um, and, you know, they'll start to be suspicious of the caliber of the people who end up running a lot of major institutions. And they'll just say, okay, look, like I, I don't, wh whatever worldview I had up until now is just not correct. Um, and, and then they adjust. And, and, and at that point also they are, you know, they, they become open-minded because, because then they, you know, because then they, they seek out somebody who can explain, you know, why, why the world is actually different than they thought. So uh, yeah, those, those, those two are very specific moments. Right. You, you went on Sam Harris's podcast. You, you did like, uh, I think he is more of a, more of a doomer, right? Maybe not, maybe not entirely in that direction, but he, but like, you know, somewhat in that direction. He's pretty doomer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like, what was that? What was the purpose of going on that podcast or like, what was the strategy of going on that podcast? Oh, I just want, one is just, I like Sam. I, I have a soft spot for Sam, um, um, you know, going, going way back, but, and I like him a lot as a person, but, um, uh, but also, um, uh, I, I wanted to have the long form. I wanted to have on record the long form, full doomer engagement experience um specifically right, right. <laughs> right like so so yeah. like, so like my conversations I, I mean like um you know like you're very much on the non-doomer side so we, we haven't even really had a controversial conversation but like i you know my, my my like the way i think about what i'm doing is like my lex friedman conversation was kind of more balanced i have a actually joe rogan's in, in the can so that'll come out shortly that's like a more balanced conversation i've done a bunch of others that are kind of more balanced um and then oh, interesting is, is joe like kind of a doomer <laughs> Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Really? Um, okay, that, that's I would not have predicted that, but that's a, interesting. Okay. A little bit. So he's he's so the, the the great thing with Joe. So I I did a previous, you know, I, this would be my second time on on on, on Rogan. My my first time, you know, it, the first time I went on Rogan, it was actually right after the 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 Blake Lemoyne, the guy at Google, kind of did the oh. most glory <laughs> thing and said that the chatbot uh, had become self aware. 
Um, and it, it, for some reason that news had like just dropped like the day before I went on, on Rogan or something. So I wasn't even really expecting to talk about AI, but that was the thing he was most interested in. And he basically was, you know, and he does it in his very, you know, kind of both fun and actually interesting and very actually smart way. Um, which is, he's like, well, how do we know that, you know, maybe, maybe Lemoyne is right. Like maybe it is self-aware. And I was like, you know, no, it's not. And I can explain to you why it's not this and that, but like, you know, he was already kind of pre-inclined at that point to kind of think, okay, maybe, maybe this thing is self-aware. So we had, we had a fun conversation there, you know, now he's just gotten, you know, he's just gotten the full, like, like all the rest of us, he's just gotten the the sort of media, you know, doomer kind of thing. And so I, I think we have a good, you know, he's not like, he's not Sam Harris, like he's not dug in on it. Um, you know, but he's, but he, he wanted to have the discussion. Um, I, I thought the great thing about the Sam discussion was like, like if, if I were trying to like, again, if it was me at 16 and I heard that discussion, um, you know, there's two possible conclusions you could make, which is one is like, boy, Mark couldn't prove his case, um, because he couldn't basically rule out, uh, you know, a, you know, a future scenario. Um, you know, the other conclusion you could make is just like Sam kind of as a proxy for the Doomers is just like really dug in on a point of view that is sort of, you know, perhaps more fundamentally religious than technological, um, you know, kind of ironically. Um, and, you know, basically just like, we'll basically make any number of extrapolations required to, you know, basically whammy himself into believing that the end of the world is near <laughs> to kind of get into kind of full millenarian kind of, you know, kind of mode. Um, and I, I just want, I wanted that on the record. Like I just, I, I wanted people to be able to hear that. Cause I, I think it's, it's, it's good to stress test these things. And, and I suspect, I suspect people who listen to that full conversation, if they can kind of, you know, tolerate all two hours of it or whatever, will will come out probably pretty starkly in either one direction or the other. And I think that's probably good. Right. So, so something, okay. So, so the long form, right. So, so the long form medium on one hand, I think like, yeah, it allows you to kind of keep, keep on expanding into detail, but I mean, like I, I'm doing a long form podcast. I don't know. I think like long, long form kind of de- like, this is weird. I, I think like in conversations where you have, a, have like large areas of, of agreement and you can actually probe the difference that to me is very interesting. Uh, Man, like I, I had, I have this episode that may be out. Actually, uh, you know what? It'll probably be out after this one, since this one is also kind of time sensitive. But where, where I just like debate immigration for like three hours, I'm like, were were any on something like that? You know, like was anyone really convinced? Did did anyone did anyone who was anti-immigration become pro-immigration or vice versa? And it almost feels like like the longer the longer like both both groups make their case, you know, like maybe this is a good thing, right? Maybe in the short version, you know, someone just really doesn't address a point or or makes like a huge plunder, and like that's not really representative of the position. But at least then, you know, you maybe it's kind of performative, but it's there's at least it feels like to me there's at least a higher chance that someone changes their mind. Whereas in the in the long form version, it really does feel like you know. Everyone who believed this beforehand will still believe this. Everyone who did not believe this beforehand will continue to not believe this. Yeah, I think the I think the the most optimistic take, and I I do I do believe what I'm about to say very deeply. Um, the, the most optimistic take is just there are a large number of people. There are a large number of people who I, I would not characterize as like they're not really necessarily on what I would describe as the vanguard, right? In, in the sense of like they're not PhD students at a major university or something, right? Where they're like part of the quote unquote intellectual class, but like you know they're smart and curious people, but they're just in a line of work or whatever where they don't engage with ideas a lot. Um, and you know that you know this is you know 
this is like truck, you know, this is even like truck drivers, forklift operators, all kinds of people, you know. Um, and, you know, because of the new technology, you know, talk about technology shifts, because of the new technology of podcasts and, you know, f- smartphones and, and then uh, Bluetooth headsets, um, you know, they, they can listen to, they can listen to your stuff. Right. Um, and you know, this is why, you know, Rogan's been so successful and Lex Friedman's been so successful and, 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 you know, they, you can listen to these things and, you know, you listen to these things and you're like a normal person and you're like, okay, wow. First of all, like, boy, I just learned a lot. <laughs> right. Like a three, like a very smart three hour conversation on, on immigration, like or, or AI or whatever topic, you know, whether or not you agree with whoever in the conversation, you know, three hours later, you are going to have learned a lot and you're going to have learned a lot that, you know, you were not going to learn if you were watching CNN or something like that or reading the newspaper. Um, so a, and then B it's like, you know, maybe it's the first time you're hearing about it. Right. And maybe it's the first time right. that anybody's actually engaged in a serious conversation with you or around you about it. Um, and you may well find one of the arguments very compelling. Um, and so I, I do think there is this like really quite, I would say, charming, lovely kind of, you know, fun, exciting. I don't know what it is like, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, broadening out of intellectual discussion. Um, and, you know, we'll probably discover that there are a lot of people who kind of had the you know intellectual horsepower to be engaged in these topics that all of a sudden kind of have access to them. Um, yeah. And then look, some of them are going to get yeah, like some of them are going to get persuaded. Right. So. I, I suspect, let me take it a step further. I suspect that um, from the 1950s to the 1990s or 2000s, we were in a, 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 a epistemic bubble that was much more severe and confining, a, a bubble in the sense of like restricted uh, uh, activities. Oh yeah, I completely agree with this. Like, it's just like the, the, the incredible technologically driven restrictions on who could broadcast information and publish information on the one hand. And then the incredible level of credentialing that took place um, in the institutions, on the other hand, just like really isolated, um, you know, any kind of intellectual engagement to a very narrow set of people who, in a lot of cases, were not actually interested in the ideas at all. Um, and were in it for power. Um, and it was in retrospect, it was like, I don't know, sipping information through a straw or something for the broader society. And like, boy, has that, you know, really blown out. And of course, you know, the people who hate that that's blown out, you know, point to the, you know, they point to the the kind of, you know, they point to, you know, kind of the, the you know, the stuff that is, is easy to hate in public, which is like hate speech, misinformation and so forth. What they're not pointing to is the stuff that's just so fantastic, which is the actual long form intellectual conversations that are actually accessible to, you know, orders of magnitude more people. Um, yeah, to, so. to, to me, something that I'm very happy to like kind of stomp on until it's dead is like this kind of um, techno Catholicism, right? <laughs> and no, no, no offense to actual Catholics, maybe right. a slight amount of offense to actual Catholics um, on my part, not yours. <laughs> um, but this idea that you know there is you know like the single capital T, the truth, you know that that everyone has to agree, and not just on you know kind of scientific matters, but on you know on moral matters. Yeah, like like the Bology has this thesis that like peak centralization was what like 1960 or something like that, right? And, and yeah, it, this is something, and and this is something that I think like not many young people know about, right? Like certainly I didn't know about this for um, you know most of my life. Um, is that you know early America was basically founded on this principle of basically you know we're gonna we're going to be we're going to highly disagree with each other and we're going to live together anyways we're going to be very polarized and our government is going to account for that and you know like every every population around the world is highly polarized has you know real political disagreements with each other 
And to me, like, if I see, you know, like, if, if I see, like, a polity that's, like, not, you know, capital P polarized, you know, that, that doesn't have fundamental political disagreements, that doesn't have, you know, basically the equivalent of a cold religious war, then uh, the, then I think that there's a large amount of censorship or there's a lot, large amount of conformity going on there. And that, you know, that, that, that's very... That is very scary to me. Whereas, like the the actual like political equilibrium nowadays, which is basically that yeah, people are very polarized, but you know, basically you have federalism, and there's a kind of like there, there's a kind of like old American statecraft that you see, right? That is actually very optimistic for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Christopher Hitchens. Um, he used to talk about this guy. There's this. Uh, he had this friend on. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, you've probably heard. Or the, expl- probably explain heard. this for the audience. I'll, I'll link the essay as well. Yeah, it's really great. So, uh, so Christopher Hitchens had this. Uh, had this friend. Is his, his name? I believe was Israel Shahak. Um, and he was one of these like OG, you know, kind of Israeli, you know, he, he had kind of the you know kind of the Israeli kind of life arc of uh, in, you know kind of in the 20th century. People people can look up his background, but he was involved in, in a lot of a lot of political you know kind of social you know kinds of things, and certainly faced you know kind of many challenges through his life and you know lived through a lot of you know strife and pain and all the rest of you know kind of the whole 20th century experience um and um he came out the other end of it um uh being extremely pro-polarization um and uh he said whenever uh hitchens would call him up to talk about anything happening in politics or society he would always say if he was in an optimistic frame of mind shahak would say the quote was um uh, there are encouraging signs of polarization um, right, which is like a hundred degree, 180 degrees opposed to, you know, what you hear, you know, in our culture, which is, you know, the drumbeat constantly from the authority figures is polarization is bad. So the, the Shahak theory of polarization is good was polarization is what happens when you get the issues out on the table, right? Like pol- polarization is what happens when you actually like fully have the discussion. Like you pull out all of the facts, you pull out all of the tensions, all of the arguments, all of the disputes, Right. And you actually engage with the substance. And that is basically like you need massive, massive polarization before you can possibly, you know, basically make any progress. Um, and, and, and so and, 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 and it was it uh, Hitchens, Hitchens uh, said the, um, the counter, the, the, the argument against polarization, uh, Hitchens described as the apotheosis of the ostrich. Right. Which is basically if, if you're not willing to embrace polarization, what you're arguing for. To your point, you're arguing for conformity. You're arguing for putting your head in the sand, right? And basically ignoring the reality of the tensions that are actually real and that and, and that actually matter. Um, and yeah, so yeah, so put me put me down strongly um, on the side of uh, a pro polarization. Right. You, this is a meme that I should make of like just just uh, you know like Ezra Klein's book like why we're polarized. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 he like really dislikes this, right? Um, I, I don't think I disagree with him much empirically, but I just like. I just want like a version of Ezra Klein's book where like, and this is good is appended on each of the, uh, on each of the data tables. Yeah. Well, let me be very direct. Like not, not being polarized means you agree with Ezra Klein on everything. Not being polarized because like Ezra Klein is like the embodiment of like received conventional wisdom, right? Like that—that's his role in our society is to just like embody all basically conventional like socially approved basically presumptions. Um, and so to not be—I pol- I think he's a bit more interesting. You know, I, I think what he's okay, pick- doing with like with like Yimby and with like um, basically like pro construction anti like NEPA act. I think like received wisdom is still being pro NEPA act. Okay, pick, pick right, pick 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 the public figure you think most embodies received uh, received conventional wisdom hmm most I, I i don't know but like i i think like the average new york times 
uh columnist is going to be more you know received wisdom than yeah. uh, than Ezra Klein yeah okay f- fair enough so, let's just go with like the New York Times writ large That's the New York Times writ large I was not actually meaning to pick on Ezra I was trying to pick on pick on a category not a person but uh, yeah so it's like take a, yeah the average New York Times columnist like because the New York Times is constantly arguing against they're constantly arguing that polarization is bad but 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 that's precisely because if without polarization what would happen in society is very clear, which is everybody would agree with the New York Times on everything always. <laughs> like, like that. Yeah, it's techno Catholicism, you know. Yeah. They're the 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 techno pope. Yeah, and so like that that's 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 the that's the actual other path. Um, and so yes, sign me up for polarization. Right, right. So the last segment I want to do in this show is kind of like projections of how AI will change society. Right. You know, there, there's the idea of like the horseless carriage fallacy, people not understanding like the second order effects of what having a car will really mean. What second order effect of having AI is most underrated? Yeah. So I think it's this, I'll put it this way. It's this, it's this thing. <laughs> it's this thing of like, okay, how will AI affect you if you have an IQ of 140? Uh, an IQ of 115 and an IQ of 90. Um, right, which is already something that's taboo to ask, right? Yes, exactly, right. Well, so yeah, yes, yeah. to start with, it's a very difficult because people don't like to talk about this topic. But w- one of the reasons I like AI as a topic is because, the, you, know, the, the, you know, of the two words, intelligence is one of them, and it turns out to be like an important aspect of it. And, it, and then, of course, it does turn out that there is an actual science of intelligence uh, that people don't like to talk about, but it is, it, it is a very well-established science uh, with, you know, 100 years of research behind it. So... It, you know, it is a topic that both can and should be engaged on, and, and AI, you know, directly. Yeah, you don't, need to tell, you don't need to tell people listening to this podcast about that. <laughs> yes. you know, they're, they're very happy to engage on that topic. They're uh, IQ aware. So, um, so, so yeah. So, but, but there's this, there's this part. You know, there, there's different strains of doomerism, and so one, one of the strains of doomerism is like basically economic uh, AI doomerism, and the economic doomerism. You know, the the answer is always UBI, right? The answer is always communism. Um, and then they just kind of, you know, kind of, you know, cause they kind of define the question to be able to generate that answer. But the specific form of that, that they do for, for AI is that AI is going to drive, you know, it's going to, it's going to greatly drive inequality. And the form of driving inequality is it's going to make the IQ 140 people, you know, much, 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 much more powerful, um, at the expense of everybody else. Um, and, you know, and, 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 um, and so, you know, they'll end up owning everything and, and normal people end up owning nothing. Um, you know, look, I think there's there's an element of truth to that as follows, which is I think AI for the 140 IQ people, I think is going to be amazing, right? Um, and so if you take somebody who's like really smart and you give them these tools, um, here would be a question like how many how many AI um, how many AIs will be working for a 140 IQ person in five years, right? Is it is it like one or ten or a hundred or a thousand? Um, you know, another version of that is the George Hotz formulation, which is, you know, a human brain is about 20 petaflops. And so he argues that we should define AI the same way we define kind of horsepower for cars. It should be kind of people power for brains. And so it's like, well, you have, you know, if you have access to, you know, whatever, a thousand petaflops of AI processing power, that's the equivalent of, you know, 50 people, you know, kind of 50 people AI equivalents. Um, and so for, for, for the like 140 IQ people, like having that level of intelligence on tap, um, you know, for, in terms of what they're going to be able to do and whether it's like research, right. Or, you know, running, you know, having like, you know, <laughs> the head of engineering at a software company in five years or 10 years, is it going to be 140 IQ person with a thousand AI programmers working for, you know, that person, right. You know, may- maybe, 
Right. And so, so and by the way, artistic production, also the same thing, you know, you give Steven, Steven Spielberg AI, is he going to be able to make, you know, 10 times as many movies at the same quality level? Is he going to be able to make one movie that's 10 times better? You know, but it, it, almost certainly like the, you know, the smart people will be able to do a lot with this technology. Um, and, th- and then, you know, you could have the dystopian view that the, the people who are at 115 or 90 are just going to, you know, just because they're l- less intelligent, they're less generally capable of dealing with complex situations. They're going to kind of therefore perpetually fall behind. But the other view of that is, no, now they have an augmentation, right? That's like the, you know, mental equivalent of eyeglasses for the eyes, right? Or, you know, the car for speed. Um, and all of a sudden they're going to have, you know, a level of intelligence in their lives at their beck and call, right? That is going to be working on their behalf, um, right? That's going to, you know, essentially give them intelligent superpowers that, that they have not historically had, right? Um, and so all of a sudden you can have a 90 IQ person, you know, paired with, it, with an AI that's like 140 IQ equivalent. And the combination of those two is going to have that person be much more capable, right? Of doing many more things, being able to function much better in the world, make much better decisions, you know, be, you know, have higher income, you know, better life prospects. Um, and and I, I, would, I would definitely tilt on, 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 uh, on that side of things, but I think that's probably the biggest question. Yeah. And I think, right. Like economists that I've talked to ask this question is, is uh, AI more like capital or labor, right? Do you, do you have an answer? Do you, do you think that uh, it's more like capital or labor? Or do you think that the distinction is, you know, not important? You know, I'd say very unclear. Um, uh, I, I suspect it's more like labor. Um, and, and again, it's just because the, the, let me say the reason I say that, the reason I say that is because it's not something that just like sits, you know, it's not something that just sits somewhere. It 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 it, it is used, right? Like, this is something I really believe. Like there, there's a lot of the AI doomer thing is you know AI having agency and going off and making its own decisions. And I'm just like I I, I like I think that's just such a non thing. You know, like it, the the big question is always how do people use technology? For any technology, the question is always how people use it. Um, and so you know when somebody has the ability, as 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 people are starting to have already today, right? And somebody has the ability to just simply use these things you know, for things that matter in their lives, like, you know, it, it, you know, these are, and then what, you know, what does it do? It, it processes information. It helps make decisions. It helps take action. Um, you know, to, to me, that all maps more towards labor, uh, and, and, and therefore augmentation of labor. And again, like the, the, historically, this would be very unsurprising. You know, the, the, the role of new technology is to increase productivity, you know, ec- in economic terms, the role of new technology is to increase productivity. You know, you can analyze that at the societal level, but you can also analyze that at the level of the individual worker. Right. And, the, and the, you know, and the, I always point out to the, the, you know, the Luddites keep popping up with the, the lump of labor fallacy over and over again. And I always point out, it's like, you know, in the 2000s, we had the outsourcing panic. In the 2010s, we had the robotics automation panic. In 2019, there were more jobs on planet Earth at higher wages than ever before in human history. Right. After 300 years of technological development and fears of displacement. Um, and, and, the, and the specific reason for that is because technology, as, technology is a tool that human beings use to, to raise their productivity, productivity levels. Um, and that both, you know, creates jobs and also uh, increase, increases wages, you know, o- overwhelmingly. Um, and, and so I, 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 I think AI is going to turn out to be very similar uh, in that way to the technologies that came before it. Right. So we're running low on time. So I'm going to ask you a few rapid fire things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the first thing is uh, going back to questions. So um, what are what are the underrated second order effects? I think you gave your first answer. It was a great answer. What are answers two to ten? You know, it's going to be it's going to be all of these amazing. It's going to be people applying 
you know, it's, it, I, I don't even know. I don't even know how I have an answer. It's more of a just question of like, okay, they're going to be surprises, right? I, like this is another thing you see with new technologies. You know, they're applied in all kinds of surprising ways. Uh, yeah, I think you mentioned the automobile, but like downstream consequences, of the automobile, it was everything from, you know, chain restaurants to movie theaters to amusement parks, um, you know, to suburbs, <laughs> right? Like all kinds of like social, right. social changes that were never anticipated by Henry Ford. Um, yeah, like what, what's the suburbs of the of the you know AI age? That that you know that that I you know that I don't know. I mean you know I, I mean an, an easy one an easy one um, is going to be um, you know sort of quote unquote artificial people, um, right? And so it's just like right digital it, relationships. Yeah, well, or even just like yeah. okay, if I'm on a social network, if I'm on whatever my leading social you know whatever the social network is five or ten years from now, is it going to be mostly humans? Is it going to be mostly bots? And which one am I actually going to prefer? And it may be that I prefer mm-hmm. I prefer the one that's mostly bots. Like I, I could actually quite easily imagine that. Um, like, have you seen this uh, Instagram Instagram Reels thing, like their TikTok thing, mm, uh, no. going viral? Uh, do, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, of, of like this, like uh, of this girl, like pretending to be an AI. Oh yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The the the, the ice ice cream. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I've been teasing all my friends about that. Um, that that that's that's the. That is the ultimate peak evolutionary fitness form of human generated entertainment. Um, <laughs> right, right before the AIs take over. Like we have successfully abstracted, right, and evolved. Like it's like the alien xenomorph of human generated entertainment. It is the ultimate form. There's nowhere further to go from here on out. All art should be generated by AIs because we can't beat that. Uh, <laughs> so but but it's human generated, right? It's like the well, it's just it's the most it, this is another thing I, I make my friends mad. My friends who like music, I make them mad about because I'm like, you know, modern music is like the perfectly abstracted music. It's been, you know, reduced entirely just to thumbs. Yes, yes, I absolutely agree with this take. Yeah, Ed Sheeran is simply the best music that has ever been created. I'm sorry, you guys are wrong. He's perfect. Yeah. He's perfect. He's perfect. You know, it's hundreds, preferences. It's hundreds of years of evolution have resulted in Ed Sheeran, and like that's it. It's it's it's, it's perfection. And then and then <laughs> right, and then the nature of it is, you know, the, the mediums become perfect at the point of their irrelevance. Right. Um, and so it, it is perfect music. It will never be beaten. And from here on out, there's no reason to even try to do human generated music. It'll all be just generated by AIs. And we'll just, uh, that'll be just the, the breakpoint of history. Is that, yep, we perfected it. We're done. Um, so I think there's, there's um, something to that. I'll, I'll just, I'll cl- I got to run, but I'll, I'll close on one final thought, which is I, I'm not particularly religious. Uh, I'm not really religious, but um, uh, I have this uh, friend, uh, John Esconis, uh, who is actually a, a, a yes. He's been on this podcast. Okay, good, good. Yeah, exactly. That wonderful friend. Yeah, wonderful guy. And I, he might—I can't remember. Maybe he made the argument on your podcast or made it somewhere else. But he said actually, he's like, he said basically, medieval people actually in many ways would have been more mentally prepared for AI than modern secular people um, because yes, absolutely. Right. Because medieval people basically knew that they lived in a world where there were spirits, right. And angels and demons and entities that were, you know, bigger and more powerful and different and strange. And they were okay with that. And they were able to build an entire basically framework for living, you know, kind of around that. Um, And so, you know, in some sense, the idea of like an omnipotent or omnipresent AI would have been like a very, you know, the the technological part of it, they wouldn't have understood at all. But like the idea that a being like that is present in the world would have been very non-controversial. Um, and so, and so anyway, I just bring that up to say, you know, maybe, maybe, in fact, I would say quite, 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 quite possibly there will be a serious religious turn, uh, that takes place here. Like we, we, we're, we're basically, we're going to reinduce, we're going to reintroduce spirits into the world after, you know, a 300 year absence. Um, maybe we could, maybe we could pick up, this is a big topic. Maybe we could pick up on this one next time, but, uh, we, we could be moving into a very different, like spiritual religious uh, frame of mind, I think also coming out of this. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, 
Well, yeah, if you do have to be going, then uh, it, it was great to have you here. Yeah, awesome, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on. That was my episode with Mark Andreessen. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you can subscribe to the Substack linked below, or, as I said at the beginning, you can let a friend know, either in person or online. I appreciate it, and you can also help us out by giving us a comment, by suggesting some future guests. I take these suggestions very seriously. And, as always, if you want another great episode next Monday, you should subscribe to the podcast. See you then!